What is going on? It is great to be back for another episode of Nick's Nonfiction. Thank you all for tuning in again for another great episode for the month of June. We will be talking about a hero of mine, Anthony Bourdain, and his book, Kitchen Confidential, analyzing his journey through what he calls the culinary underbelly, the gastrointestines he went through the shit of the kitchen. A man that wins the lottery of getting to travel the world for the rest of his life, he really put in the work and this book kitchen confidential shows that i got tons of jokes tons of stories tons of good times to go along with mr bourdain's book and this show is in memorial of our good friend who we know last june passed away that one hurt me it was right about when i was moving to denver as well so you know it gave me a little juice his soul is back out there in the universe take the good out of his lessons what he considers his body an amusement park and a reckless way at life we will be able to learn a lot from anthony bourdain and one of the most free-spirited men to have ever walked the earth we have all of that today on nick's Nonfiction with your host the host with the most back at it to boast if you don't agree with my politics you're gonna get a roast <laughs> That's what happened all last month. This is Nick's Nonfiction. I'm Nick Muniz. Ta-da! Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for tuning in again. We're going to have a great time this month. So this is going to be a much easier episode than last month. Last month was high-frequency truth coming at you. Your brain might still be a little bit fried. So June is vacation month. This is when we used to get off from school. People travel a little bit. You're getting the sun. The birds are chirping. You're out there. And so last month, as we were growing our brains, now we're going to be growing our muscles and the calluses on our working man's hands. And this will be a good transition. There will be no politics. There will only be poutine and other food that Anthony loves to um, talk about from his French roots. And this book is a novel, like a biography. Anthony is an author. He's just a writer. So this isn't like one of these scientists that we've been reading about a couple months ago, Why We Sleep. Nah, this is a nice little narrative tale that we're going to be traveling around New York and where else you're going to see he cooked throughout his life. It's going to be a fun adventure this time. Back to dreamland. Since this is science-based, like Anthony writes in a descriptive way, like at times I can't remember if I was reading the book or if this was parts of Parts Unknown, his show. His writing is so vivid, you go to sleep, you dream about one of the places he was sharing a wine or a cigarette with a guy. Was it the book, the show, or was it real life? That's the magic of Anthony Bourdain. He writes a beautiful tale. And for Nick's nonfiction, this is going to be a little bit of a hump for us to get over something new to try out. This is a bit of an experiment episode is what I'm getting at. Before we get into it, what else is going on? June 1. Harry shit, we broke 8,000 followers, everybody. If you're coming from the shits, welcome. You're going to love the show just as much as you love the nightly memes. Slinging LOLs. <laughs> and when I say LOLs, I mean a guaranteed blow of air out your nostrils a little laugh every single night on hairy shit a funny meme is going up keep following it's getting better the comments i love the comments are getting even funnier people just chime in with the randomest stuff other people roast them some people have better captions than i would have came up with it's awesome hairy shit go check it out get involved and also (laughs) who else heard i've been mentioning a lot about denver being the wild west these motherfuckers just decriminalized mushrooms take a step back and think about that one it's not criminal to go to a park with your pupils dilated to the size of a saucer anymore sweating every last fluid out of your body 
that's okay now in this city. We'll see how it goes. I think there's going to be a lot nicer people, hopefully, throughout the city going forward. Um, probably more homeless people, too. So... <laughs> I'll keep you all updated on what's going on with that. That was really big news. It's the first state in America, just as they were the first state to get this whole ball rolling on legalizing cannabis. You're welcome, everybody. It's going to be carrying diseases. Just know not to abuse it like anything else. That's the nerd warning I have to tag it with. Enough about all that. I'm sure I'm going to find a way to link that into the show the first time Anthony starts cooking mushrooms. So... Let's get into this. Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential, about the author. We all know a thing or two about Mr. Bourdain already. Anthony was born in 1956, older fellow than you would have thought. Because this guy died with a six-pack, he was ripped until the end. He looked younger even for a guy that was chain-smoking since birth and doing heroin. So all the book to come. Throughout the book, throughout the show, he always says he was raised and he'll forever live in New York City because it's a great hub or like launch pad for your travels. Think about it, you could be in the most remote corner of the earth, the outback, some Southeast Asian island chain, or the middle of Antarctica, and you know you're going back to the hub, New York City. So that's what he loves after traveling for so many years and having been born and raised there, of course. But I think his statements still hold something having been one of the most traveled men in history you could go online and look up like the anthony bourdain travel map literally has like one of those google maps pins on every single place he's been on the globe this dude is bigger than magellan for real magellan couldn't make it to the south pole people didn't do that till the 1900s he's gonna be remembered for hundreds of years hopefully <laughs> so throughout the 1900s in new york city his dad was a camera salesman so they were pretty well off. Like, how do you get into selling cameras? <laughs> you gotta know a guy who knows a guy who has some lenses, who has some zoom in tech, who has some flashes. You gotta be in there. <laughs> and so uh, Anthony's dad was able to take him on vacations to France throughout the summers. And their parents were foodies before Instagram. So they couldn't just search by locations what was trending to eat. These people were going to other countries just knowing about chefs. So there's stories about that in the book. In 1978, Anthony graduated from the CIA. No, we're going deep state again. No, I'm just playing. Everybody hold your horses. You are safe for the month. <laughs> CIA, the Culinary Institute of America, not the Central Intelligence Agency, a.k.a. your webcam on your computer. That's where he put in a lot of his hours to learn about demi-glaces and dicing and all these chef terms. And then this book, Kitchen Confidential, we're talking about, was published in the year 2000. So this is kind of what got him onto all these travel shows and channels. Right when he published this book, he finally didn't have to, like, slave away in the kitchens, he was saying anymore. That was in 2000. He finally blew up. 54 years he was sweating over grills. And then he got to travel the world. So he put in the work, he didn't quit, and it paid off to Jesus Gandhi Buddha traveling proportions after 2000 when the book was published he got the show a cook's tour from 2002 to 2003 that was a show with the food network but it was only 35 episodes they were traveling around the world still got to go to 35 places on the globe how many have you been to even better this was like in the golden age of cable television you could discover things on the discovery channel animal planet actually had animals on it and the history channel had a family of three generations of diabetic men who would argue about rarities coming through their shop Porn stars, baby. 
you know, see, this was the golden age, and then porn, porn stars had a really good run. They went on for, like, nine seasons, and this is when Twitter came about and shit, and Chum Lee started getting a little too chummy. You could tell his jokes were a little contrived, and the whole scenes were set up, and a lot of the artifacts coming into the shop weren't real. I'm telling you, man. <laughs> Nobody watches History Channel and shit anymore. Ancient Aliens isn't even on there. <laughs> But Anthony just powered through all those times on the Travel Channel, all the way from like 2005 to 2012. I don't think I've even watched this whole series. No reservations. I've only seen the nine seasons of Parts Unknown. That's a lot of television, but hell yeah, I want to see more around the globe. So <laughs> once there's a universal streaming service, that's going to happen eventually. Then I'll binge this guy's masterpiece finally. And then in between No Reservations and Parts Unknown, he was a judge on the taste for three seasons i don't know what that show is it sounds kind of fruity though i don't think i can say that anymore fuck you're allowed to do mushrooms in this state but you can't call something fruity that's fruity as fuck <laughs> like even though the first chapter anthony bourdain is like i'm the bad boy chef all these other chefs like to teach the housewives but i go out on the world and do drugs and eat food that makes me poop for hours at a time oh right the cynic chef but for three seasons, Mr. Anthony was on the taste. You can see even someone at his level will do something for a paycheck here and there. And then finally, also side project, he founded 0.0 Productions. They produced their own show, Parts Unknown, which was on from 2013 to 2018, up until his suicide, which is when they were filming in France. And they say it was for reasons unknown. They found him... Yeah. It's sad stuff, man. One of the guys that's been on his past episodes and he traveled around Japan with... He's the one who found him the morning after. So it makes some of his work, like going back and watching his show and reading his book, some of it's really eerie because he's friendly with death. He says in the book there's many more times that he should have been dead than is still alive. So he lived with that weight on his shoulders where I push that shit down. Most people don't even ever realize that. I didn't even realize that until I read this and I just push it down deeper. Irish Catholic? I'm not even Irish, but I think the church taught me to push it down. So instead of dropping shitty jokes like that, I will try to convey some of Anthony's quotes with respect because they were obviously written with a heavy heart. This guy was lugging around the globe of 500 pound heart with masterpieces and poetry and writing in it. And, he, you know, this guy wrote graphic novels. I guess I didn't have anything about that in the about the author, but he was publishing like comic books and doing stuff he really liked before he passed. And that's our about the author for Anthony. And let's get into this book. I think it was like a five-part book, and it's broken down into, I guess, then a five-course meal. So let's start with the appetizer. Tuck those napkins into your shirt, push those earphones deeper into your ears, and let's get into this from Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential here on Nick's Nonfiction with your host, Nick Muniz. Appetizer, a note from the chef. <laughs> Anthony claims to have done it all. He's been slaving in kitchens since he was 16 washing dishes. He was a dishwasher, a prep drone, a fry cook, a grillardine, he called it. It was an annoying term, almost as annoying as saucier. I think you're supposed to say saucier, but I'm not going to be doing that French bullshit. He was a sous chef. He was a chef. He hosted his own show. Mr. Bourdain has done it all. So let's dig into his culinary journey more than his travels. If you want to hear about his travels, go watch the show. This is about cooking 30 with the bad boy chef. 
So Anthony's done it all from the bottom to the top, and he made it very clear in this appetizer note from the chef, he is not writing this book, recording this show, <laughs> to shit on people that he worked with in the past at all. He wants to be able to work with chefs in the future, you know? He was able to use anonymous names, not drag anybody into this dirt, and through this, he's been able to call out to other chefs or people who are aspiring to be chefs or people in the slog, in the kitchen, through the grind, who need needed something to remember this is the reason they got into it and this is what anthony is saying he doesn't write this to just be mean of course you have to say mean things to be funny and insert an appealing aspect to your book but he wants to share those grueling stories about the culinary underbelly so restaurant lifers may hate him for doing it and writing this book for like giving out their trade secrets but that's just literature you get to learn about other people's things if you're willing to read about it but they're probably the people who made this book a bestseller and purchased it most because they know what he's writing is true. From the very minimal experience I have in some kitchens, and like I said, I'm not going to shit on my past either, a lot of what he's saying is very relatable and true. And many of you out there who have put a summer in at a burger shack or whatever are going to be nodding your head along with the show saying, yep, Anthony knows what it's all about. And that's why he made it to the highest level. Anthony sums up this appetizer saying it's definitely not a cookbook. It's an adventure book, not a choose-your-own-adventure. It's his drug-induced, food-induced, sexual-induced life. This little excerpt gave me, like, tingles. He was saying, just being a chef and creating the one dish that gets your name on the menu or as, like, a comedian creating the one-liner that everyone remembers, what do you get from that? It's about the journey. It's about the adventure. It's about starting as a dishwasher and getting in stupid adventures with your friends in the kitchen when you're still allowed to get in trouble before you have to be a chef and manage these people. So as Anthony says, he doesn't want to just be on a menu. He wanted to have an adventure. He was willing to live the lifestyle of a cook to have that adventure. Is that not a filling appetizer? Well, I know you all have plenty of room. We're about to be binge eating. It's time for the first course. Anthony called this chapter, Food is Good. All the names of these chapters are a little artsy. Bourdain, you know, is an elite. It's a reoccurring theme in the book here. Him taking his six-year-old vacations to France to eat runny cheese in the Alps. Yeah, that's not a little sus. Every cameraman can afford that. No slipping into conspiracies this episode. I got my fill of all that speculation last month. Having this secure childhood, as you could call it, Bourdain was able to see food as an art at an early age. I know I have to get a quick slam dunk in. And art is for the elites. That's where the art develops. It's funded by the elite. I've heard of stories of micers and people who sing getting gifted hundreds of dollars by people of the audience saying, hope this helps you make rent this month. You have a potential here. Keep working, man. That shit happens in real life. At the highest level, that's why if you've ever seen that Banksy documentary, Exit Through the Gift Shop, it's all just whatever gets funded. Whatever bucket you put on the ground in the right gallery will make people say, hmm, hmm, and furrow their brow like they're really getting into something artsy. Bitch, you're looking at a bucket! <laughs> and that's elite art, right? <laughs> but IMHO, in my humble pie opinion... Anthony put in the work, which is the most respectable kind of artist. So let's dig into this first course. Anthony first looked at food as more than a fuel on his cruise to France. <laughs> the big thing he talked about was having cold soup as opposed to the burnt Campbell's that us Americans eat. Alright, Anthony, not everyone can afford vichy soie on their fucking Queen Mary trip to France, dude. 
I mostly live off of $2 soup cans and Campbell's is my G. But this is how a real chef is born. Kid was five years old. He's eating cold soup. I didn't even know what vichyssoise was. I thought that meant like threesome in French. Majnage toi, vichyssoise. Same shit. <laughs> And then for periods during the summer later on, he was able to stay in France with his cousin in Normandy. They grow wine there. They have free-roaming cattle he had stories about where he painted beautiful pictures. I would encourage you to read the book if you're a fan of Anthony Bourdain because, you know, he can't put out any more content. So get lost in his old stuff where he really paints a picture of his past. It's pretty beautiful. He was talking about cousins there in France in Normandy. And <laughs> this shouldn't all be a surprise, Bourdain. Say it. I'm saying it in my whatever kind of accent I have. My Jersey, Della, Massa, Denver accent. Bourdain. <laughs> it should be Baldain. I need to get more nose in it somehow. Baldain. Anthony Baldain is a French-ass name, man. They were eating buttery cheese with their cousins. He says the smells would infatuate him. I didn't exactly have this palate. I wasn't infatuated by cheese at a young age. <laughs> Up until, I think I was 16, man. I couldn't tell the difference between butter and cheese. <laughs> for real, when I was like six, I didn't know what to ask for at a restaurant, if it was butter or cheese, or what was the difference. And I think what had to play into this was one of my buddy's friends. We'd go over to his house. And <laughs> I've been there a handful of times. And every single time, the younger brother would be like, hey, you want to see this cool trick I could do? I can eat a packet of butter raw. I know, I was like, I eat raw butter all the time, but I was talking about blocks of mozzarella cheese, and this kid pulls out, I don't know why in their house they had little hotel-style packets of butter, and he just popped it in and ate it. And guess what? This kid I'm talking about, one of my good friends, little brother, he was on Chop Jr., little motherfucker that was eating butter. <laughs> I guess that's some sort of refined palate shit, because Anthony Bourdain here said he was eating runny cheese out in France, and this kid was... <laughs> as a stunt eating butter for his older brother's friends and it paid off as anthony got older throughout his trips to france in the summers his parents would let him have a little bit of wine watered wine they called it he'd have steak hatch crudite varets somebody out there knows what those things are Anthony's eating it at a very young age, getting familiar with these French words. Me as a now 23! That's what also happened last month. I'm 23 now. Me as a 23-year-old, I don't even know what crudites are. Crudites. 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 That's what I'm calling them. I'm a Yankee, and he's eating yaris. Yares. Interesting thing here, or maybe this fueled Anthony's lifelong of addiction, but he just admitted at like 10 years old his parents were giving him watered-down wine just because this is what his cousins and what they did as a custom in France. You learned how to drink with your parents. It's pretty smart. Rather than drinking a water bottle full of stolen vodka out in a field until you pass out with your friends. <laughs> America. <laughs> Having a bonfire out in a highly flammable part of the country, America! But in the chateau regions of France, they're giving their kids watered-down wine. My dad used to, like, put his thumb in wine. I don't know how old I was when he's doing this, where it's just an implanted memory, but I remember sucking on a thumb that had wine on it. I was the drunkest baby on the block! At least he learned how to drink the right way. And he got to, like, drink beer with uh, Obama, which is a big accomplishment, in the middle of Vietnam. So he's an experienced drinker. He knows how to handle his booze. Started at a young age. I had a later learning curve throughout college. I was still blacking out. But that's what you go to college to do and get an education, sure. <laughs> As a kid, when we would have family parties or we would go to our friends' family parties in the neighborhood, we'd go in the basement and bite off the necks of those little chocolate liquor things, 
remember, and just drink down the, like, <laughs> 0.3 fluid ounces worth of Baileys that was inside of these little chocolates, and we were like, I think I'm drunk! That's responsible drinking at a young age. <laughs> And then you got to eat the chocolate. We learned a responsible habit there. Always chase liquor. Coming to an end to Anthony's French vacations, La Pyramide was the restaurant in French that his parents sought out and was like trying to find for ages. It was ran by Ferdinand Point, which was a grandmaster training chef. He would train other people how to be grandmaster chefs. This guy's top of the top, and they made it to his restaurant in France. That's where his family made their pilgrimage. Now people vacation based on Instagram posts. What's looking hot right now? Where should I buy tickets? Fire Island. Anthony was also eating. If you have a weak stomach here, listen up. He ate brains, horse meat, and sweet bread. The worst of all, which is soggy bread. I remember on the show, parts unknown, he ate young shit. This isn't a new mumble rapper. He ate... It's the remains of a... (laughs) It's the remains of a cattle's intestine. So it's barely processed poop. It's like chewed grass. The horses or cows half digested. Young shit Anthony ate. And on another episode, I remember he ate zombie meat. Yeah, I had a bit about this. This guy ate zombie meat. It's meat that was like wrapped in tunics for a long ass time. Praise to the gods. Cats pissed on it. You know, the whole Egyptian zombie tradition. Oh, that's a that's the difference between a zombie and a mummy. Same shit. <laughs> and he ate this meat that was just like rotting. Can you imagine this guy's dumps? Just for a minute, close your eyes, or maybe next time you're on the porcelain throne, try to imagine one of Anthony Bourdain's dumps. Those things are legendary. He's eating other people's poop and zombie meat and brains and horse meat and soggy bread. Dude's a legend on the toilet. (laughs) When he had his first oyster in France, he compared it to losing his virginity. It was a bit of a homoerotic scene describing a slimy thing going down your throat. And I see what he means. I feel like the times that I've been to raw bars, had oysters, it's like your throat. Basically having unprotected sex with the ocean. All that, like, salt is getting in there. Oh, yeah, I want to spend my money on slimy sea bugs. One of his tips later in the book, he has a lot of, like, insider restaurant tips to take home. Don't order mussels. It takes, like, two minutes for the chefs to toss them into a stock, their pre-boiling soup they have, so just give it some flavor, and as soon as those things crack open in six minutes, throw it out the window, have the runners come take it to the table. It's a freebie. Mussels and the slimy oysters, how Anthony lost his virginity. But him, as opposed to me, Anthony was a fan and compares having oysters to losing his virginity. Big oyster guy, apparently. (laughs) Like I said, this guy lives off the edge. Of course, he's having raw sex with the Pacific garbage ocean and all those <laughs> and all those oysters they're plucking off of it. To wrap up on these vacations, he would go to really fine kitchens with his parents where they would eat snails. Of course, you knew they do this in France and lizards. But him and his buddies would kill them with firecrackers and then just like cook them on a fire when they were chilling and eat lizards. Me and my cousins, when we would visit our grandma in Florida, we'd pick lizards up and feel terrible if we ripped their tail off by accident and try to take pictures of them with them on our shirts. Anthony's blowing lizards up with firecrackers and eating them with his friends. Bit of a sociopathic tendency there. (laughs) Not gonna lie though, me and my buddies were one step from like roasting a squirrel on one of our open bonfires in the middle of the forest. It's not that far out there. (laughs) All those gross things he ate throughout the first course here, but Anthony said 
he also had in France hot waffles, whipped cream, powdered sugar on top of all these beautiful French classics. His deeper point at the end of the chapter is he is a self-admitted thrill-seeker, pleasure-hungry sensualist seeking to fill the empty spot of the soul with something new. Like I mentioned, some of his quotes are a bit eerie, but that is true. Everybody's trying to fill a void acknowledge it and capitalize on it or let it sabotage your subconscious let's go on to the next part of the first course food is sex better than sex it pleasures both of your holes now i'm saying you get to eat it and then five hours later you get a free butt gasm every time you eat imagine it went the other way around you had a mouth gasm after every time you poop no I don't even know what... No, you don't have to imagine that. I'm sorry for putting you through that, dear listeners. <laughs> but food, Anthony's right. Food, in many ways, is sex. Anthony definitely means it in more of an artistic sense than my mukbanger. Mukbang example. You know what those are? It's like those Korean videos of people shoving their face it with food on live camera. It's like a, a fetish. Nasty, dude. Ew, I just got shivers thinking about that. Why do you want to watch someone give themselves heart disease? <laughs> I guess Anthony's form was a mild mukbang, though. Like, he would, <laughs> he was going around the globe just gorging on people's common food. So, yeah, I could see how um, if the AI trends me in the mukbang community for using that rare term. Come on in, people. We're talking about Anthony gorging himself. I remember on one of Anthony's episodes on Parts Unknown, one of his quotes he wrote down, I think just the little quotes they would have in like the cuts or the bumps between parts of the show was <laughs> little things he wrote that didn't make it into his books. And I remember him saying one of the episodes, am I just a walking around digestion tube here on earth? <laughs> like referring food is sex this chapter his mouth is just the start of the hole and his he's the digestive system that's carried around by like the i see your spine you're like a spinal snake if you've ever seen predator or yeah just like one of those movies where they rip out the spine and the head on the end humans are like snakes and then we have these awesome mech units that we plug into anthony sees himself as an eat and poop machine <laughs> to go around the globe to do it's okay, everybody. Anthony could take a joke. <laughs> so Anthony says he's the bad boy chef. He's the Nietzsche, the dark chef. I'm seeing him as more of the Guy Fieri talking about going around the world, eating full throttle, one side of the tube out the other. <laughs> Let's go full tinfoil hat conspiracy theorist. Guy Fieri would say out of bounds, and, 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 and Anthony Bourdain, he would say off the reservation, one in the same man. Yep, that was the frequency from last show, right? I'm a real conspiracy theorist. Got him off the airwaves. Moving along. In 1973, when he's done with all these trips in France, he graduates high school and then starts flunking out of college, viewing the world as his ashtray. He said all of his actions were pretty self-destructive as he was a narcissist. That doesn't help at such a young age. <laughs> you got to use like the uh, sleep inertia. All these things we're learning about Malcolm Gladwell's accumulating advantages it's running with the positive energy dude and so he was flunking out of college because he was thinking dirty thoughts at a young age and i see you know that little bourdain is in all of us that's why he's so relatable it's great he's a hard to palate whoa that's kind of a good comparison he's a hard to palate taste kind of like those runny cheeses and zombie brains but if you are able, I'm not, I wouldn't eat that shit. If you're able to handle those flavors, he has some real meaning or some real flavor to offer throughout his writings and TV shows. 
And then going throughout his tries of college, in the summers, he would spend time in New England, in Port Town, working at like different lobster shacks, and he spent many, many chapters focusing on this time, so I think it really must have, he found value there. It was somewhere that held heavy in his heart. He went there at the end of the book and found the old chefs that he started with in the old crab shacks, just grinding it out. And a lot, it seems like a lot of these successful authors write about these weird, foolish periods of behavior they have when they are getting into their craft. So Anthony was about Port Town. Like I said, spent many chapters. He drew very vivid pictures of the people that he was working with. I'm not going to friggin' describe all of his friends over this podcast. You could read the book if you want to hear about that. This next point of the chapter, he said in his time of coming up, you could pretty much start anywhere as a dishwasher. You would just have to wait two days for the busboy not to show up, and you would have a job. You just had to stay through the shits. You just had to stick it out. And people say you can't get a job in America right now, man. It's hard to get one if you don't want one. You don't want one of the jobs that the immigrants that come to our country take have. You don't want that job. You don't want to be cleaning toilets, admit it. I don't. And so even if you stick with one of these shitty jobs, so minimum wage is such a big deal, you know this stat, 90% of minimum wage workers get a raise within the first year. It's just about showing whoever you're trying to make money with you that you're also about the same way of making money. We don't need to get into that minimum wage, but Anthony was bringing this point up. He was saying, you don't graduate college and just deserve work. You have to derive value. You have to slug it out. In New England, Anthony was cooking with surfers, ex-cons, fathers. He said a lot of people were drunks. People would steal anything that wasn't nailed down. Ho, ho, ho. It's really just people in the kitchen, it seems, in weird points of their lives. These weird, I say, because status quo is normal. They're not in normal points of their lives. That's what Anthony was getting at here. Surfers, ex-cons. He gets a little mean at the end of the chapter. We'll get there. But it's outcasts, he says, that are working in the kitchens. In Newport, he got one of his first line cook jobs. This is essential. It's about getting that muscle memory down. He was learning how to kill animals fish gutting them mixing lobster and mayo even down to that base stuff i still don't really know if i like lobster you ever hear that thing where lobster used to be prisoners food why did it switch they used to give it to people in state penitentiary in pennsylvania and now it's uh, food for the elites i think it tastes pretty good with butter but that's kind of just because i like to drink melted butter and i'll actually admit it so i don't know if the lobster is just a good <laughs> carrier for melted butter but we need to have a blindfolded taste test between, like, California mix, hot dog of the sea, and friggin' <laughs> and high-end blue tan lobster. What if, like, what if Cheese Whiz is the next food flop? <laughs> Should I do, like, a... Imagine if you were in the 1930s when it was changing and you were hoarding a lobster farm. You would be rich. Should I do a doomsday chamber under my house of just Cheese Whiz? Because that might be the food of the elites in the future. I think that is a bad investment, but how did Lobster do that 180? X-Files, the mystery of the lobster. <laughs> Anthony had a story here towards the end of the chapter about him getting laid on a sack of clams. I know he was working in all these seafood restaurants, and I don't really remember if it was a sack of clams, but... If there was a Kitchen Confidential porno, it would it would take place here. Or if there's going to be a fan fiction written about that. I know there will eventually, so copyright. Pay me every time someone's jerking off to Anthony laying clam on clams. Clams on clams on clams. <laughs> 
I think he's trying to say here, portraying at the end of the food is sex chapter, that food is love, man. You hate it. You love it sometimes. You're frustrated with it sometimes. But that's what love is. You stick it out. Relationships are hard. Making friends, getting in relationships is hard because you have to commit. You have to put in the work for something. And that's what he's saying. He loves cooking. He hates it at times, but it brings him a deeper feeling. He loves it so maybe food is sex maybe food is love let's go on to the next chapter food is pain just like the lobster thing we're starting off this chapter with another brain buster up until the 70s squid was considered garbage you could go to any italian restaurant now and they will be selling a 12 dollar dish of fried calamari which is absolutely amazing again i don't know if i just like the fried or actually like the calamari <laughs> is it butter or is it lobster <laughs> And Anthony was talking about food is pain here because he was buying also bluefin tuna in the 70s throughout his restaurants. And it's like a gamble being the guy who's ordering inventory for a restaurant. If you're ordering the perishables, you have to try to order the right amount so that it doesn't spoil and you sell all the amount and you'll have to do a special on Monday that's just shoving all the meat out the door. So food is pain. Anthony was getting mentally manhandled by the prices of squid going up and down and blue tuna fluctuating so he's trying to say there was a mental grind to all this also he had long days and hours he talked about through the book you could literally open to any page and he says oh, i was up until 5 a.m that night can i do an anthony bourdain let me try <clears throat> this is how open bikers do it. i don't know why <clears throat> this is anthony bourdain staying up at night <clears throat> anthony bourdain up at night <clears throat> I was up until 5 a.m. <laughs> you know what he sounds like. It's one of those weird, stuck-in-the-back-of-the-throat voices that he has. <laughs> that is my Anthony Bourdain talking about working long hours, and that is why food is pain. He said since the kitchen environment and these conveyor belt work environments get to be so monotonous and painful the chefs in new york would get creative wherever they could the butcher would like just slap his knife down on the table really hard just to try to peacock a little get people to look over at him doing the salt bay type of moves and even the line cooks where you're doing the most robotic shit they would put a little english a little spin on the plates while they were spinning them out the window with the sauces on them it's just people needing autonomy in their jobs as we learned through bullshit jobs a couple months ago being a robot shrinks your hippocampus it's really bad for you anthony realized that that's why he grinded out these saucier levels and as a high level chef you have just as much freedom as a freelance writer you get to make go around the city eat food try to make your own dishes as a comic go around listen to two hours of other shitty comics and then try to write five minutes of your own jokes you have this freedom to go try to make something of your own, just like being this high-level chef like Anthony. And in most situations like these kitchens, people don't have a lot of autonomy. That's why there's such high turnover rates in the profession. That and food is pain because he was saying his other dickhead chef friends would throw hot potatoes at him and his fingertips would burn off. And he said everybody there has mangled, calloused, missing fingered hands. <laughs> it's a painful place in the kitchen there. Food is pain. I worked at a grocery store and know a thing or two about food, you don't say. <laughs> I remember one time I was 16 and my like manager was like, he was a funny dude. He was always messing around with me. And one day he's like, here, eat this. I'm like, what is this? And he held up this thing. I looked at it. He held it close to my eye so I could get a closer look. And my eyelashes burnt off. It was a ghost pepper. 
this thing was radiating heat and he's like eat it and i thought it was big nuts so i popped the entire pepper in my mouth chewed it a couple times and swallowed it whole because <laughs> i didn't want that thing on my tongue anymore it was nuclear for the couple seconds that it was and you know so it burnt my entire esophagus and my gut i was like hurtled over my register the whole day as a 16 year old cashier crying to the heat while my nose is dripping onto the scanner from the spiciness of the pepper but the runny nose lasted for days and you know man's got to wipe his b-hole so that just i'm just playing i didn't <laughs> i've heard stories about people putting hot sauce on the bunghole and that is not a good recipe uh but definitely food is pain at shop right i <sighs> that shit hurt man and I know they have, like, this X9 hot sauce now. It's not even food anymore. They're just putting chemicals to, like, sear off your taste buds so you could prove for YouTube followers it works that you could eat the hottest pepper on Earth. But I ate it from <laughs> from Romanov. That wasn't his real name. Some, <laughs> some magical man that gave me a ghost pepper. <laughs> the store closed down. This guy could have been a hallucination from the pepper. What mid-manager are you talking about, Nick? You ate a ghost pepper. Ah! <laughs> Anthony said he had to work a lot of fry stations out there on the Cape, and so he had all those fryer burns up and down his arm. For the couple months I worked at a pizza place, man, I was you probably spend cumulative an hour a day with your forearms inside of an oven. Well, I had nice crispy brown defined forearms. They also had oven burns on them, man. So shit heals over time. I still have a couple you can see, but food is pain, man. If you're dealing with these fryers and high-level equipment, you're going to get burned. One time, Anthony said he asked a chef for a Band-Aid when he was a line cook, to which the chef then showed him his hand full of blisters, and he like just squeezed and a bunch of pus and water popped out that's yeah i love to read about this that's why he called it i guess the culinary underbelly it's disgusting stuff that was going on in the kitchen showing how much of a gruel this other chef was going on and young anthony was entitled enough to think he needed a band-aid in another story about how one of the butchers just beat his ass one time after work he was drunk we have stories later about how being a chef you get to trade with the bartender and there's like a mutual agreement and one of the butchers was drunk and just beat the shit out of anthony and he felt bad and he gave him a 35 pound veal shank just the leg of a beast and him and his stoned roommates, he said, lived off of it for weeks, just roasting off different parts of the leg of this lamb. That's the efficiency of hunting, everybody. It's not cruel to go kill free-roaming animals to feed yourself for a year and not be a part of factory farming. And when he asked that chef for the band-aid the one time, he got called mal carne, which is a really bad term in the kitchen. It means bad meat in Spanish or just like pretender. He got called a poser by one of the chefs because he asked for a band-aid. You fucking poser. We don't use band-aids here, he's saying. So, Anthony said he turned that into motivation. Pain can often be motivation. <laughs> if people get ripped after a breakup, you see, pain is motivation to get better and pain throughout the kitchen motivated him to get through the hard nights, he said. Further into the first course, let's go inside the CIA. We're going deep. Finally, a chapter inside the CIA on Nick's nonfiction. The truth. Nope. Culinary Institute of America. This was after Anthony was kicked out of Vassar was the school for drugs and drinking. And he saw, I found that on Wikipedia, so it must be true. It took him five years to finish college, apparently. 
but he was like in the book he said he was living off campus with his chef friends so no wonder it's like living off campus in the biggest frat house of course there's gonna be a shitload of super seniors it's the best position on campus <laughs> i'm sure many men of ages can attest to that statement it's an unreal life we could get into that if you want the one episode we'll read Ooh, i got a book that'll definitely make some people angry somehow uh you ever hear of the game by neil strauss like i was talking about last month people hooking up it's the game and neil strauss apparently some legendary playboy wrote a book about like negging chicks and shit like that i haven't read it yet it's a non-fiction book apparently so i think we could make a funny episode out of that <laughs> What does that have to do with Anthony? Yeah, so Anthony was living with, like, higher-level chefs who have the access to some of the nicest food in New York, all of the drugs. He said the guys at the docks, at the markets who were selling fish, would also just open their trench coat and have every imaginable drug. So, like, these dudes were set and they were just treating their houses as like playboy mansion people come people go and anthony was trying to live in that place while getting an education that's why it took him a couple years over he also mentioned how he could have got a scrap education at these restaurants and he has like 10 rules later on one of them is like don't just stay at the biglio's pizzeria for your whole life because you're only gonna get joe dabiglio's take on business you gotta fucking move around and see how other managers do something it's not like one manager who runs one shop knows the best of all business practices it's like those old medieval countryside wanderers you got to see how all the shopkeepers are running it to improve your shop eventually anthony was smart in this way and he got a formal education in gastronomy you know the science of food at cia I said the other month, not everybody should go to college. And we see this massively successful guy, Anthony Bourdain, went to college. You're saying, oh, if I don't go to college, how am I ever going to get to travel the world on the Discovery Channel? That's a one in 300 billion people ever got to do that. Sorry, my dreams. Sorry, everybody else. Not everybody should go to college. College should be more like in the military. They have officer training school. That's all this is. You can graduate college. You could go work retail. You could get an internship at any of these offices. They just tell you how to do their work man <laughs> college should just be like the officer training program where you le are learning how to go up to management it's all an illusion you have to act like you're a prim and proper leader when the time calls that's a real thing obviously why don't we make the two hundred thousand dollars people are sinking into formal educations no you should go learn how to lead other people and you have to learn how to follow to learn how to lead but you spend 12 years in grade school learning how to follow plenty so yeah, if you're going to pay to go to a college, they should be showing you how to skip ahead to these next levels. And see, I just used a buzzword, skip. You got to put in the stupid grind work like Anthony. So college really doesn't do anything. You're not skipping any levels anymore. You just go into the workforce like everybody else, high school grads. <laughs> but if you're able to pay for the school go ahead do it however you want anthony said that he was able to pay for his first few semesters at cia by cheating at poker because he was living at the chef house so there was like poker games every night after long nights so he would sell drugs to these people as well and he was able to pay tuition with that that was always one of the urban frat legends you ever heard about <laughs> chet freeman over in gamma house he pays for his full tuition and zan money dog i heard he has like 19 lakh sticks dude and he gets two haircuts a week this dude's a frat star hey man if you're like anthony and you could cheat at poker like guy bilzerian and get yourself to a mansion or pay for school through it more power to you i don't care 
Anthony had stories about this crazy German chef at the CIA as one of their teachers, Chef Bagna, who would make them balance trays and recite recipes, so basically lineups he was doing. You can see it's part of a worthwhile education to get hazed and be in those extreme, real stressful situations when you don't know when you're going to get to finally sit down and relax your quads while people are walking across them. That will build a man, not going to gender studies. You can only imagine then. <laughs> they had like a uh, CIA obstacle course, right? The CIA has one, then the Culinary Institute should have one where they're swinging on string cheese to get across barriers and crawling under cheese graters, scaling a giant wall at the end, monster cheese. That was a cheesy-ass comparison. That was shitty. I'm sorry, everybody. Let's move along. This guy, Chef Bragna, Chef Bagana would give them what he'd call the 10 minutes and this is when he would ream them out in front of everybody and you'd have to stand at attention you can't whimper you can't look this guy in the eyes while he's telling you how you can't even poach an egg that would make you be able to deal with the heat of the kitchen when you're in the middle of a rush and your manager is yelling at you you need to eat the shit you need to be yelled at in the face by someone if you have been pre-exposed to being yelled in the face by someone you're going to be able to handle it in the future and this is the military man you go to boot camp the first thing they do they get you off the bus you stand at attention and a guy in a silly hat gets in your face and tells you how fucking worthless you are because you are what worth do you really have I say these things knowing I don't that much myself as a 22-year-old male, man. You gotta build your way up. And that's what they do at boot camp. That's what they did in those frat lineups. They try to build a man out of these geeky freshman white kids. Doesn't always work. That's the point, though. And Chef Braga was doing this over at the Culinary Institute of America. He would just yell at how your apron's dirty. How you can't flip a pancake. Whatever, dude. You gotta sit in the bomb sometimes. Anthony was saying all these foreign school teachers bought the heat, though. <laughs> I remember in college, we had foreign math teachers. They bought the heat, man. They don't slow down. Come to office hour. Come to office hour. No questions. What the fuck is this? I could watch a YouTube video if I can't ask questions to this thing. I'm paying you $3,000 for this course and you won't answer a question. If you have the humility to admit you can't do 2 plus 2 in front of a lecture hall of 30 of your peers who are all judging you as judgy as college kids are, you're paying this guy to answer your goddamn questions. He better. There's pros and cons, I guess. Like he's saying, Chef Braga, if you can't ask questions, though, you adapt and you make it work. Because what are you going to tell a customer when there's no more T-bone steaks left and he uh, had this reservation for three weeks or something? You're going to dress up a pork chop for him that's a little bit burnt and hope this guy's palate is garbage and give him enough free drinks beforehand where he can't tell the difference. Case solved. <laughs> you got to think on your toes. Thinking on your toes and eating shit are very close cousins. One is the escape to the other. And towards the end of this chapter, Anthony's saying, once you get your 10 minutes, that's when you know. I can't just go out into the world with a college degree and demand a job. I still don't have any value. <laughs> So that's what Anthony's saying here. As a metaphor, these chefs that ask for band-aids while they're on the line, shut the hell up. <laughs> Slug it out. People have been through worse, always. You can stop when it's over. You can always make it through. You can do this. 
<laughs> but when you never have to go through that point and you don't know that you can make it through and you cry when the littlest things happen that's how we have these high schoolers that are walking around in their fucking cherry red shoes right now with their iPhones going in a 360 motion putting the world on camera yelling in public spaces it's annoying kids everywhere man <laughs> and there's ve there's something very pure and beautiful to those expressions there is no cruel <laughs> sourness of the world weighing on this kid's red shoes yet but once he starts making $11 an hour and those red shoes get scuffed and he realized that oh shit I only get to buy one new pair of shoes a year now that's when you get a real man that's when you don't have a child trying to walk around and impress other prepubescent people in his shoes and i think some of that gets filtered out with all this like helicopter parenting now where you know you're you're so special sweetie you get to do any of that coming from the kid that has his own podcast i know self-defense here how fucking brave is anyone else to start their own podcast people come up to me they ask you what do you do in your spare time because you know i don't i'm not taking girls on dates every night so, like people fucking expect me to man i don't have that much money i can't i'm sorry I say, yeah, I have a podcast. It's hard to say, man. It's pretty vulnerable. And people go, yeah, I think I should have one too. Then do it. Do it, man. I'm not stopping you. No one's stopping you. It's like starting a business. It's hard. But that's the point. If you're told you're so special and you're never going to fucking go out of the way to try to be special. So when you're being helicopter parented and you don't have the room to go out and take these risks to eventually fail. My first podcast wasn't very good. That's why I scrapped it after a year. I knew going into it, I said, this is my 2017 project, and I had the most fun doing it. It helped get me through my senior year of college. Stressful time for some. Easy connection to now, you see. I'm struggling, man. I'm 22. I'm trying to fucking spit jokes on stages where there's sometimes three people at the end of the night, and this is one of my favorite things to do. And I know I'm failing. Some of these episodes fail. Our last episode soared. On my meme page, I've failed for two and a half years. I am starting to see some success there. You have to fail for a long time, baby. You gotta have the foundation to make it all the way to get to those high levels. And it's a constant work. It's an adventure like Anthony started this chapter saying. So all those kids that have the helicopter parents that are told they're amazing without going out and failing to actually find out they're amazing until they get a minimum wage job and find out they can only buy one pair of shoes a year, they're not going to want to strut around town in those cherry red shoes. This is about becoming a man. This is Anthony's journey here. And I'm going to just shove in <laughs> this other chapter. It wasn't that notable, and we'll get into the second course then a little bit quicker. This was called The Return of Malcarne, just another one of the characters in the book anyway. So it was during one of the summers at the CIA, he returned to Provincetown again. Anthony talked about all the immigrants who just came and gone. There was this one Russian pasta maker he talked about for pages on end. His name was Dmitri, and... He would say they would stay out until 4 a.m. on a lot of nights just drinking and doing coke. They would, like, steal the legs off of beef from the butchers and just steal bags of Szechuan peppers, bring them to bonfires on the beach like true G's, and just everybody would be partying the entire night because they had 50 pounds of meat and some spice to go along with it. Other people are bringing the booze. <laughs> Who doesn't love the dude that shows up with burgers to the tailgate? So now he's saying he's a little bit older. This is the end of his CIA career. He's not an 18-year-old kid now. He's 22. Such a big difference. It's an exponential difference at this age because, you know, your brain's still not done developing yet. 
He said every time he would go back to Provincetown, the people were still getting into the same trouble. Stealing from kitchens, going out and inviting girls to do barbecues on the beach because you're not allowed to have a fire on the beach in America because laws like we know. But Anthony says, this is a deep statement from him to end the first course. Some of the best rib bones Anthony has ever eaten. A guy who has eaten at Michelin star restaurants, been around the world, eaten Bobby Flay's bullshit. Some of the best rib bones that he's ever eaten were partying with this guy Dimitri and other girls from Provincetown just marinating meats every pun intended out on the beach and that's because i've said it before emotion is the secret sauce to memory he was looking back on this provincetown as a beautiful time of development in his life getting into the craft of cooking and then having the beautiful ends of the night with the people that he was grinding it out with and that made this meat taste the best of almost all of his travels around the globe he was in a great place in time and it made the food all the better food is an experience food is part of the experience it's like that dining in the dark thing that was a beautiful end to the chapter about anthony marinating meats in his old college party town so he says you have to have those places to develop and luckily he got to have his bone of adventure satisfied (laughs) while getting down Um, this gastronomical science of food during the majority of the year at the cia that's why i respect this guy so much he's a work hard play hard type of man let's get into the second course here who cooks this is when anthony gets into slander remember he prefaced the book saying he didn't write this book to slander he wrote it to relate to other people if people feel like they're a dysfunctional outcast they're going to read this book and not take offense Anthony says these people are dysfunctional mercenary lot fringe dwellers, motivated by money, cooking, and grim pride. Not necessarily American. They are whack-out, moral degenerate dope fiends, refugees, thuggish assortments of drunks, and sneaky thieves, sluts, liars, and psychopaths in the kitchen. This is who he thinks culminates in the kitchens. This is who gets thrown into the pot. This is your work environment. But the one that stuck out there most to me was not necessarily American. That is a very interesting point. I won't go too deep here. But I think that had something to do with why he was traveling. And when he travels, he says he relates to everyone. He doesn't know what American means, he said a couple times in the book. It's like he thinks of himself as a child of the world, as Corey is, that is. But, dude, he he's walked more world than Gandhi. He has the right to douchely say, we are children of the world. Dude's been to every continent. So it's not necessarily world travelers who are cooking, but like he said, dysfunctional, blah, 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 people mean things. But what these people are capable, Anthony talked a bit about line cooking. Line cooking is like, it's like a high-speed ballet, like a machine. And these people can never call in sick or be late because then a cog in the machine is working. The machine's not going to work. You need everyone there. That's why you can't call out sick or ask for a Band-Aid. And I've seen when you work somewhere long enough, the establishment becomes a part of your central nervous system it's an extension at that point and they say this is like the difference between manager and uh, employee it's because the manager can never get the establishment off their brain it's become a symbiote dude you have let this become part of your brain so much <laughs> i will wake up just dreaming of drawing latte art just wiggling my wrist and seeing a leaf pop up on the top of a cup i can't do it in real life so that i guess that's why i dream about it i'm trying i'm getting better but <laughs> 
<laughs> you see your job they have a word for this in the kitchen your your workspace is an extension of your central nervous system for the line cooks they call me's m-e-e-z your me's is your setup and anthony goes into deeper about how your me's should be Moving the narrative forward of the book a little bit, uh, this was after CIA when he went to college. He was working at an Italian restaurant, was owned by this like three-star chef in New York who would make his own sauce and pasta daily. And he said, this guy said, quote, not Nick, quote, three-star Michelin chef over here that makes his own pasta daily says, Ecuadorians make the best line chefs. Mexicans and Dominicans are also reliable. And then Anthony said he concurred with that throughout the rest of his career. But I was starting to think that these upcoming chapters were basically just him being able to say racial stereotypes. So maybe we are in all children of the earth. Of course there is truth to stereotypes. That's why they exist and people repeat them for millions of years. And then Anthony said here, why all these immigrants and people who don't even speak English cook? Who cooks? People who don't speak English because cooking is a language of its own, Anthony was trying to portray. He does say later in the book, though, that if you're going to be a chef, one of the higher levels, you have to learn how to speak Spanish because there's going to be people on your team who only speak Spanish. So if his wife is in the hospital, mi esposa está en la hospital. I guess he could kind of have an ear for it and just hear what they're trying to say. But you should have to speak Spanish if you want to manage Spanish people, which makes sense. And cooking is enough of a language where you don't have to talk that much. You guys are you're doing work. You're fucking cooking. You don't go to work to socialize and hear about each other's lives. You go there to get the task done and to make money together. And that's why you see uh, like salesman floors. They have those pitch meetings where everyone gets fired up. You all have the same goal. It's viral. It's a viral feeling. Since cooking is a language of his own, this kind of ties back into the line cooking thing. It's a robot. If you learn the language of coding, then you like learn how to program computers forever. It's the same thing with cooking. So if you're coming out of college with a CIA degree, like he did, he didn't expect to be a chef. He went to line cooking out of college. So he spent tons of pages just trashing, in his cynical point of view, just trashing on kids who come out of college and think the world is theirs and owe them a living. But the story of a 23-year-old for real is you got to work your fingertips off. <laughs> and then when you turn 24, you go, fuck, this is the rest of my life. This is every year forever. This is how it is from now on. And I don't have fingertips. That's Anthony's point here. So once you have those initial years of life, and it's like the 10 minutes, it's like the guy screaming in your face, but life, life is screaming in your face for two years after you move out of a college town where, ooh, you're getting A pluses and Bs for showing up to take notes. Here's a degree for $200,000. <laughs> So you got to go through the grind. You got to get in your central nervous system, the me's. You got to get that little setup in your head. And this is true for anybody at the highest levels. It's just that the professionals start early. Like for golfers, you see Eldridge Woods, Tiger was swinging a golf club at two years old. Golf clubs are part of that dude's brain's central nervous system. He's doing swings in his sleep. He's getting practices while he's in NREM sleep. Same with, like, snowboarding. You feel... Ooh, man, I miss that fucking feeling. When you go to sleep after snowboarding one night, 
you still feel like you're carving. Like you're surfing in your bed somehow. Remember if you ever used to go to an amusement park, you kind of feel like you're in a roller coaster when you're in bed. It's not like that thing when you're drunk and the room is fucking spinning like your bed's at the top of a tornado. It's like that NREM vibration. You're kind of like, you're, you're weaving in and out. It feels like you're skiing down the mountain. It's all just becoming part of your central nervous system. And my newest one that I've been seeing this on, of course, work because you have to spend eight hours a day there. So that's becoming part of my brain. But <laughs> but the mother truck and motorcycle I've been driving around, dude, has foot stands that you kick out when you have a passenger on the back. But when you're by yourself ripping it 60 miles an hour, you lean over like you're riding a ninja. This thing is a 150cc, so it's super versatile. It goes 90 miles an hour. You could take it on free access highways. Point being, I'm not trying to brag about a motorcycle. (laughs) Go rent a moped or a motorcycle. It's a moving meditation. (laughs) You can't concentrate on anything else or you'll go off the road and die. But it feels like you're flying. When you lean over this bike, you got to build up your confidence. Like I'm saying, beware people. You lean over this bike and you see the gravel under you. You become one with the bike and you are flying around. One time I missed an exit and I was going on the highway. You know how on exit for highways, it's just like big loop-de-loops. And I did an entire figure eight. And I felt like I was zooming out of my body watching from above myself on this motorcycle toy as a little matchbox car. Just doing these figure eights on these giant road waves. It's an outer body experience, I guess is what I'm trying to paint a mental image for you guys here. It's dope. And when you get into these really deep flow states, like the motorcycle, like the snowboarder, like the golfer, like Anthony doing his line cooking after the Culinary Institute, he didn't expect to be a chef or a manager. He grinded it out on the line for a couple years. And this is all about stuff just becoming part of your brain. So who cooks still? What's going on in the kitchen? Anthony says towels are valuable as fuck. When your fryers are running for 20 hours, there's going to be a lot of hot grease going to a lot of places. So you need to have a towel on hand to literally wipe searing oil off of your arms. So while this burning liquid is on you as a line cook, you got to be cool under the heat. Not only under literal heat, but then when the rushes come as well. When the human body is like amped up and very hot, everything's working on high alert. And then the rush comes and you really have to keep your cool under the heat in a figurative sense then. I remember a bartender telling me at a restaurant I worked out how keeping your face is one of the most important things because you're always understaffed at a bar and bars are weird, man. Why would you want to work at a bar where everyone's just staring at you while you do your job? I mean, it's coming from a kid who does stand-up comedy. I mean, that's because you're going there with something prepared. You're trying to make people's time worthwhile. (laughs) People are watching you while they're in an awkward conversation on a first date (laughs) for 40 hours a week. Damn! I mean, you get paid handsomely. Anyway, this bartender was telling me you got to keep a straight face because... If you show that you're overwhelmed, customers smell that shit like blood in the water. They're going to be like, where's my drink? Where's my drink? Hey, I think I had this. Hey, I think I had this. And they're going to start trying to ask you for free stuff. So keeping your cool is a really big thing. I saw it in my brief experience. Anthony's talking about it here. And to finish up, who cooks here? Anthony talked about all those whack-out moral degenerates, dope fiends, refugees, (laughs) drunks, sneaky thieves, sluts. (laughs) Sneaky thieves, sluts, liars, and psychopaths. That sounds like a fun fucking party. 
Anthony also said there are three types of people that usually make it to the chef level, which are the artists. I imagine he said that because he wanted to put himself in that category. Guy earned it. I just am throwing shade to try to <laughs> fill airtime. Be fun on the show, baby. <laughs> the second one of the three is exiles, which are the people who don't know what else to do. They can work 40 hours a week and they can manage at a chef level over other people, but they can't put on the customer service face. So they go to a kitchen and they become a head chef. And then the third are mercenaries, who are just guys that are in it for the money. They're working doubles, they're working late hours. You can make good money as a chef, but you got to be willing to do those doubles late hours. You're a mercenary. And so let's move along here. We're in the second course. Anthony calls this one from our kitchen to your table. Or this is what is basically just a chapter like pointers for all the patrons. If you're going to a restaurant, definitely take note on this. This is a good breeze by chapter if you're just dropping in for a quick Nick's on fiction. Like so many do. <laughs> Anthony's philosophy is very obvious throughout the show. And he put it in text in the book. Good food and eating is all about risk. Like he said before, food is sex. It's unprotected, dude. You you might have a baby. You can have that mouthgasm, but is it worth staying up all night with diarrhea and stomach problems because you had to try the muscles? <laughs> so Anthony's first real tip was never order fish on a Monday. That's usually as long as five days old. You know, like the fish market starts on Wednesday in most cities. I don't know how this is in small towns, though, so... Read this book with a grain of salt. I'm forwarding his ideas and adding a little yuck-yuck here and there, but just don't order fish out of Monday to be safe. And, you know, you don't have to follow this as a law. Like I said a couple months ago, it's, it's better when people follow the Bible as a guideline rather than word for word. It's better when people follow the law as a guideline rather than what some guys wrote down in 1700. Feel free to order fish on a Monday. Like I'm saying, I don't know in every single city in America when the fish markets are. Anthony's saying Wednesday in most. So my thing is just don't be the guy that goes out for business lunch and is like, yeah, I'll take the... Uh, sous vide carp and everyone's like what the hell this guy's eating zombie meat for a business lunch people are like looking over their shoulder just don't be that guy you don't need to have the most eclectic best order at every hour of the day one of anthony's tips later on is that you want to go to a restaurant where there's a pretty small menu and the people are busy because those dudes are making a good ass dish and they know how to have it down to a science but for now, just remember, don't be going around getting fish on Monday in the middle of lunchtime. Another one of his tips is that fish specials, like the fish stew, is usually just what's going out at the moment. And when you throw all those fish together, you're just, as a customer, you're expecting to taste a fishy dish. Uh, it's one of those other freebies for the chef. They're getting paid to push stuff out the door that was going to have to go into the dumpster anyway. And the way this kind of works, Anthony was explaining, was... He would go down to the docks and it would say fish price, $5 per pound for tuna bass, hamachi, dolphin, whatever you're buying. And then on the menu, it'll say market price, $20 per pound. I would think you'd know that the market price is really not what they're getting it for at the docks. The market price of fish in a restaurant isn't based on anything. There is no NASDAQ for the fish market where the government is watching over it and they'll chop your fingers off if your fish gets too valuable. The market price is whatever the chef wants it to be. And if the market price is low, that it's not because it was a good day on the docks. It's because the chef is trying to get this bout to be rotting fish out the door. 
Next tip Bourdain had also about seafood was, again, don't eat the mussels. I kind of covered that early. It's just a two-minute easy in-and-out dish. Throw it back at your runners and tell them to get their ass out of your kitchen. <laughs> Free up some space. Another no-no is hollandaise sauce. Holiday sauce, I would call that shit until I was... I still call it holiday sauce. It's in the red zone for bacteria. If you ever work with food, you probably have to learn this a million times. It's like over 40 degrees and under 110 degrees. Bacteria love making love anywhere in that area. They don't even make love. They're asexual. They do mitosis, just splitting themselves in half. Well, just make it a little bit colder so they don't have the need to multiply. Anthony also said, which they tell you at every restaurant they don't do, but reusing bread is an industry-wide practice. As soon as it goes behind the swinging doors, they take this guy's loaf of bread that he didn't even touch and just put it on the next table. Of course, how much food are we supposed to waste in this country? We already waste like half of what we produce, and you're not allowed to give it to homeless people for whatever reason. Denver, along with this freaking mushroom law, it was also on the same vote. Another thing, why do we just shove a bunch of different votes into one vote because i would vote for the mushroom thing but i'm not about to vote for this next one that they just passed along with it what kind of democracy is that plato and homer wanted a direct democracy that's what the iphone is for so while we did get new mushrooms to cook with (laughs) part of this bill 300 that just passed is that it's no longer illegal to be in a public space that you don't own That's the uh, language of the law. But what they're trying to do here is make it so you can relocate the homeless. Because, like I said, there's homeless people all over the city. It's a metropolitan. There's a lot of people working hard in this area. So, of course, there's going to be freeloaders as well. (laughs) With the language of this law, it's supposed to be the richer people. Like, they don't even want to look at the homeless people. So, they're saying, get off the street. You guys don't own the streets. You're not allowed to loiter there. Almost every house in Denver backs up to a back alley. I have seen going to sleep on a night before people in the alley settling in for a night. And then a cop came because I guess somebody else on our block called the police on them. And it's the rich people that are voting to not let homeless people on the streets. You don't have to look at them. I was able to see this motherfucker sleeping outside through my window. I didn't feel bad because, you know, I... Because I had to wake up to go to work the next morning while motherfucker Jones was still under his blanket. You deserve to be outside, man. But maybe you also deserve that old bread that restaurants are all reusing and then throwing out at the end of the night too so we'll see what happens here they're changing all types of laws in denver and maybe (laughs) maybe just as big of a step as decriminalized mushrooms is corporations being allowed to give homeless food could be just as big for turning the side of an actual caring society but the point anthony had there about the reusing the bread goes back to his theory that eating food is a risk anytime that you go to have somebody prepare food for you you're taking a massive risk in the olden days this guy was probably about to put arsenic in your food that's why everybody had chalices and shit and carried around their own thug cups it's because you were scared someone was going to poison you and so now we live in a world where you could put on yelp if someone has cockroaches in their food and people don't go to that restaurant anymore but the same people that are on yelp also bitch about having reused bread okay so you are for throwing out food and having people living in the streets That's what your stupid article says to me when you're complaining. No, you shut your fucking mouth and you don't give that company your business anymore. You're not a customer anymore. No, you gotta go be the nerd in the classroom blowing the whistle (laughs) on Yelp. But Yelp is exactly why we don't need like food inspectors where you have to pay a couple hundred dollars just to own a restaurant on top of your small business taxes. You gotta pay the state off to say that you're clean. No, Yelp will put you on blast if you're selling dirty ass food and you have a nasty bathroom. The internet is the great liberator. And then Anthony's next tip exactly. He said, don't eat in a restaurant with a dirty bathroom. Put that shit on Yelp. You'll see that all over Yelp. It's a clear indicator of how the rest of the place is kept. 
big point Anthony took a couple pages to talk about was to always be nice to your waiter. Like I said, these people are in charge of your food, so this guy could easily do a snot rocket on the way out the door to give you your tortilla. So you don't know if you're getting a boogerito. That's why you got to be nice to the staff. You got to realize this is a private business. I just stepped into their doors. They're going to be slammed for a while. They might not actually care about me and see me as a dollar bill sign. But as long as you put up the customer service front and treat everyone with respect, you're going to be fine. And hey, imagine if you're being a dick to your waiter and you got something off the market price. You know they're going to be charging you a lot more. That's like how if you leave your debit card at a bar and you were a prick to the bartender. I've heard of them like adding a hundred dollar tip at the end of the night because you were a drunk asshole and you left your money there yeah maybe you deserve it <laughs> so that's a little bit of street justice a couple more things here he said along with dirty bathrooms if like the chefs have dirty aprons and all that it's a good sign that that's the same amount of effort they're putting into your meals as well how you do one thing is how you do everything you've heard that i kind of try to live by that one obviously you can't be on 24 7 you can't always have a dumbbell in hand but it's true. The way you do one thing is a good indicator of how you live the rest of your life, usually. And so try to hold that in one part of your brain. And this as the other, Anthony ended the chapter with his very much reoccurring quote about how your body is not a temple, it's an amusement park. So enjoy the ride. But you see, like I said before, the guy died with a six pack. So of course he followed that motto, your body's an amusement park, not a temple. He followed it as a guideline instead of a law. That's like you can't be on 24 seven, but if you live by how you do one thing is how you do everything, it's gonna improve those parts in your day where you're not feeling it 100%. And this is like what Anthony's saying, you always gotta do a life of oh wells rather than what ifs. <laughs> I think I remember when I was really young, I'll try to end this chapter with a food story. Um, who doesn't go to Costco with their mom? I had wheelies, so you know I was flying around there. One time I went down a ramp in the mall on my wheelies, and my head went between a girl's breasts. And nobody would ever believe this story, especially because I was like 10 years old, and I tried to tell my buddies, I motorboated a girl the other day while I was healing. Yeah, right, dude. It was embarrassing, though. I was like, I'm sorry, ma'am. I wasn't like, let's roll, baby. <laughs> had better wheels than I do now and better moves than I do now. <laughs> so I'd go around Costco with my mom on my Heelys. They give free samples. I remember there was a pizza bagel flavor that was discontinued. I think it was like Canadian bacon. <laughs> Somebody's going to send it to me that they have that now. Oh, well, that's my diet for the rest of 2019. But I was too scared to go ask the lady for a free sample, so I just healied by. And I think about it to this day. I'm 23 now, and I'm still thinking about this Canadian bacon pizza bagel. Don't live the life of what ifs. Take some of these restaurant tips from Anthony, and let's apply them moving forward. A little deeper into the second course here. How to cook like the pros. Anthony says he does not eat at restaurants on his day off because he's usually trying to think up ideas for his books or his new whatever his next dish is going to be. But he says when he's looking for recipes, he, he does go to other restaurants for inspiration. Thief. That's chef theft. You can't be taking other people's recipes. <laughs> This makes sense, though. It's like coming home as a retail worker. Retail workers probably leave their laundry out <laughs> for like a week after they wash it because they don't want to fold clothes after coming home and doing that for 40 hours a week. Anthony says the same with cooks. They don't want to do that on their day off because it's what they have to do to make money. So chefs actually just fast 100 days of the year when they're not working. <laughs> Somebody believed that. <laughs> no, they're not nocturnal fasting creatures. But this is the same thing as, like, <laughs> you never want to date the chick that's a masseuse because you're not, you're never going to be the one that's getting the massage. She's not going to want to come home and then give another massage. You're going to have to do it to her. 
and it goes back to the thing. Once you tell people that you open mic, that you do stand up, you could call your some people call themselves a comedian that are just on the open mic circuit. Once you tell people, oh yeah, I think I'm funny, or however people personalize that statement, oh, you think you're funny? Tell me a joke. <laughs> That's like if this guy's like, yeah, I'm a chef. Cook me a chicken parm. Oh, you're in retail? What size is my chest just by looking? Don't touch me. Make me laugh. That wasn't that funny. Shit's annoying. <laughs> Bitch, you think you could be a chef too? You could tell a joke? You could cook an omelet? Why don't you go cook an omelet on stage in front of 40 people? And we'll see if you think the joke is funny then, or if all 40 people like your omelet. Spoiler posting memes every night, bombing at mics every week. It's a game of the numbers. Not everybody's gonna love you, man. You gotta go find your fans and ignore the haters. <laughs> the first utensil on Anthony's advice to cook like a pro rather than taking a break on your day off is you need a decent chef's knife. As a child, I would just watch, remember the ninja commercial? The guy would cut through a Coca-Cola can with a knife. That was awesome. And this was before the trend of all these like satisfying YouTube videos do you see now? They have like unboxing videos. People literally just open shit on YouTube and make millions of dollars. <laughs> I'm in the wrong hustle. <laughs> People like pop a bubble wrap and have millions of views. We had to watch the Slap Chop and the Ninja Knife commercial back in the 90s. I was a 90s kid for four years. At least I was alive in a different millennium. <laughs> and now these kids have their... <laughs> have their satisfying youtube videos on demand and we had to wait for primetime infomercial that's some bullshit <laughs> anthony recommended global was the name of the brand of knives that he actually recommended so who knows if he got paid by them in 2000 for this he also said you need a flexible boning knife i don't have a joke for that one that's a joke of itself you need a paring knife which is like an off serrated knife you need a plastic squeeze bottle again this is to be able to mimic a chef you want to be like a chef so you could hold the thing over your ear and squeeze your glaze so it whoosh, spits the fire up makes you feel good which in turn will make the food taste better he mentioned this thing a couple times it was called a mandolin which is basically i googled it it's just a vertical slicer it's like a cheese grater but it has like a bunch of different settings rather than having a million knives you just have this cool vertical tool that you spin it and slice how you need to this was a cool one you need a thick bottom saucepan you need a thick thick ass bottom saucepan <laughs> this way you could keep simmering things better it makes sense like when you have a really thin cheap saucepan the heat from the flames of the stove just go right to the bottom layer of the sauce and, and i'm definitely not sitting there stirring my sauce like you're supposed to every 30 seconds <laughs> but having that thick bottom saucepan you're able to evenly distribute the heat and you can give someone a head injury <laughs> that was anthony's test for if it's thick enough you should be able to knock out an intruder along with these are non-stick saute pans easy pickup from even target my biggest thing i had recently i got this for christmas bro i'm 100 percent in i will recommend it to anybody who grills you know what fucking sucks about denver it's a big enough city where people have their own backyards and are able to grill but every chick i've asked to come over and grill is a vegan it's a bullshit i mean i, I grill some mean vegetables what's good there girl <laughs> no there's been dead animals aka sustenance on that grill i can't eat off of it well you're definitely not going to want to eat off of this thing Christmas, I got a Himalayan grilling salt slab. Just Google it. It's like a square foot. <laughs> it's like 20 pounds. It's just a slab of salt. 
throw it on top of your grill, throw some burgers on top of there. And then one of the worst part about grilling is that all the juices fall down the grate in the grill. You don't get the grill marks. So that's a plus or minus if you like your burger that you're not even going to see to have little black lines on it. If you keep it on this salt slab, none of the juices fall off and your meat is getting salted. You only have to spice it. Every time you flip it, it gets saltier. You can see the juices accumulating and it marinating itself. Dog, get yourself a Himalayan salt grilling slab. I just threw some bro sites at you. Whatever a dude talks about grilling, he gets into the science of the juices and falling through the grill. <laughs> if you're a man, you have an automatic degree in grilling. And salt slabs are how you're going to level up your game. Or in Anthony's word, you're going to cook like a pro with this damn thing. <laughs> Anthony also says you should always have shallots and garlic to roast as well as butter on hand. Something I just learned about salt. So even even more of a plug for my salt slab. They better send me another free one. Even though it's lasting, it's going to last me like nine summers. What salt does chemically, it blocks the bitter receptors on your tongue. So that's why it enhances all the other flavors in the food that you're eating. It's because you don't taste the bitterness. And humans usually pick that up. We have a brain filter that out for how bitter something is. Salt is able to bring out all the other flavors. Pretty cool. And I don't want to really waste air time on this, but you all have heard about high hypertension because you eat a lot of salt. That's a myth. You could go educate yourself on that. High blood pressure because of salt, humans. <laughs> Do you know how they used to keep meat fresh for more than two days in ancient times? They didn't have refrigerators. Not ancient times, up until friggin' 1900, bro. They covered meat in salt. Just doused it in it so you couldn't even tell it was meat. That's how they took it across the Atlantic. So they were eating some salty shit, but as long as you're out there sweating and not wasting your body, you're not going to have hypertension and these diseases that they tell you you're getting from salt. I guarantee 90% of these people have inactive lifestyles. If you break a sweat during that day, you're going to need to replenish the salt beyond the normal nutritional daily value that they say. Well, I think I just wasted a minute of airtime always concluding in the government lying to you. Eat as much salt as you want, just don't be a lazy bastard. And Anthony's last tip was, good food is simple, fresh, and garnished. It's not about making this crazy dish that you serve on a fake bicycle in the hipster part of town. That doesn't make the food taste better. Simple, fresh, and garnished. And he said even more than those three, making the food makes it taste better. Just like how the best ribs he ever had was on the beach in Newport with his buddies. <laughs> they have those pre-rolled joints out in the legal states. You guys back on the East Coast are in medieval times. We have mushrooms now. Those pre-rolls are booty. It's like going out to buy a dinner. When you roll your own joint, you knew the process. You saw where this thing is coming from. It's like raising a chicken to slaughter and eat. And then you get to smoke the chicken. <laughs> it's just being part of the process, being fresh, keeping it garnished, and keeping it simple. K-I-S-S, -S, keep it simple, stupid. Moving on in our second course, who's getting full? Nobody. Owner syndrome and other medical anomalies. You ask a lot of other Americans their dreams if they actually had the liquidity to do something and, you know, start something of their own. A lot of people say, oh, I'd have my own restaurant. This chapter is all about owner syndrome. This is also why people don't start their own business, don't start their own restaurant. Shit's a lot of work. Anthony starts talking about all the headaches that come along with it. And he said how most restaurants, I think the stat is over 50% of small businesses, he said most restaurants fail on their first try. But then those with experience, the guys who ran a restaurant, watched it go under and still have the capital to start another, 
those with experience have a much greater success rate. So don't give up on your, even if it's your first restaurant, don't give up. Another one of the things Anthony was talking about is that people get way too emotionally invested because, oh, I put my name on the restaurant. So it's literally part of my identity. You can't get too emotionally invested. This is a business. It's a gamble. We'll see how it works and then we'll adjust moving forward. You totally fail. Then you start something new. One of the interesting things about the lots failing in New York City, like a restaurant that goes under that specific lot i don't know what to call it fucking rental agreement where the restaurant was can be tainted forever after a restaurant was there and we learn later that (laughs) running you know having a a thousand people come through your establishment a night where waiters are walking five miles a day on the concrete it literally beats in on the establishment so if there's like joe's pizza shack in new york that's open every single weeknight for a couple years and is the hottest spot trends on instagram five years later when all the staff is burnt out the owner has a couple million dollars and he's like all right we need to take a break from working 24 7 that lot when he tries to sell joe's pizza nobody's gonna go back there a lot of times the next restaurant is gonna fail there because the place is beat to crap and the customers in the neighborhood know it as something else and know the lot has been abused so you could definitely be unlucky and buy just crap location for a restaurant and that could be it for you you get the beginning bump when every business most businesses every restaurant when they open up they do great that's the best you're ever going to do because people want to see what it's about same with media and all that but that's when it's critical one disastrous venture can bring down a chain of a business forever same thing with my show man i'll use the examples i know you could see the stats of how long for people listen on youtube shit whenever i'm saying something cringy or i'm not on my game bye you're losing a listener it's the hard truth man and this is what's happening in the restaurants you got to try to adapt we know the shows are getting better here it's all about staying power it's that inertia we were talking about before you need it flowing but when something isn't legit when it's a one-hit wonder when it's a guy who has one good joke it's in and out it's not going to be in the zeitgeist forever that's where you see the 15 minutes of fame it could be luck it's like half of these new food trends you see come in and go out one week later have you heard of pizzeritos pizza Rito. you can eat a pizza you can have a burrito you know what it's called when you roll a pizza into one a calzone they're just literally taking like 20 inch pizzas and rolling them into some sort of taco just because people will take pictures of it on instagram and it's trending but it doesn't have the stang power it's like the sushi rito the sushi rito wasn't here for long maybe the burrito is just a bad formula as soon as someone finds a piece of dolphin like a real dolphin in their sushi rito then the pita people are gonna act up and everyone's gonna be like sushi ritos were stupid to begin with i don't even know who had one But then when Burger King like serves their chicken fries with a finger in it or a dead rat in a mouse trap, it's all over the internet and people are like, but that's Burger King, man. I'm going to be back there next week. That is called staying power. And that's what a lot of these failing restaurants in New York City don't have because they don't stick it out. And that's what owner syndrome is. It's getting accustomed to the slog. And Anthony ended this part talking about how Owners being in love with their place is the most dangerous. Love blinds your rational. Best, (laughs) we talked a little bit about it before. But to sum it up, love makes you blind in any capacity. It shuts down your rational thinking brain. Having all the oxytocin flooding through your brain when you're hugging a loved one. Whenever your brain is in that mindset, you're thinking irrationally. You're thinking out of emotions rather than with your prefrontal cortex. And so that's why so many of these restaurants fail. It's because these owners are in love with their place. They're not looking at it 
objectively. Oh, I need to fire this kid. He's not bringing me enough worth. But he's part of the team, blah, 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 blah. You got to be a cutthroat businessman if you want to succeed and make it past that year as a small business. Anthony says in all these situations, pretty sure this was, I heard this in ROTC. This is like a military term. Prior preparation prevents piss poor performance. It's the magical six Ps. If you're prepared, shit isn't going to hit the fan. You'll be ready for it. And real chefs know how to organize, operate, and lead. And that is the owner syndrome and some other medical anomalies. And who's ready for the third course? I know we all still got room. And Anthony is here talking about, I make my bones. His 10,000 hours, this is when he becomes a chef. He's living in the West Village at this point, which is like right above Hell's Kitchen, which is where some of the trendiest restaurants in New York City are. And he says he's, at this point in his life, he's finally able to keep his mouth shut. He was always getting himself in trouble, probably talking about living in a chef crack house and then asking for Band-Aids on the line, being a little entitled Bourdain. As he was keeping his mouth cut, he took pride to the fact that his hands were finally getting chopped up and ugly, so he's looking like the other chefs. And here, as he's making his bones, he worked for what was called the Rainbow Rune, which was on the Upper East Side overlooking Central Park. And there's a couple chapters on this, but he was having a lot of fun here. He had a good crew. He said he would get him and his coworkers in and make side bets on customers. So anytime, how long do you think these people are going to stay in the restaurant? Over under 40 minutes. And then one guy's walking home with five more dollars. It's like putting a little English on that sauce. It's finding a way to put some expression in the time that you're utilizing. I don't need to get two bullshit jobs now. This is like the opposite, though, of what I have seen in my desk working environments. I've worked at a couple like call center type of field offices. And Every single time, the management puts up a competition board pinning you and your coworkers against each other to see who's going to make the most calls and then win a $5 gift card. <laughs> but, you know, that's not really for morale, dude. It's to increase productivity. You're an asset. You're being treated like a machine. If the mid-management wanted to see you guys having fun, they would let you do things like these making bets that you're giggling over and not really getting anyone in trouble simultaneously. I see it as a win-win. Up at this rainbow room that Anthony was working at, grinding it up to be a chef, he served Frank Sinatra Noki there. So it was like a really high-end restaurant. He said Robert Kennedy came through for these like charity tennis tournaments. And the owner was this Italian guy, Gianni, who would take Anthony and some women around town. They'd have wine and espresso after work. And then he'd go home super amped up and drunk. And Anthony started getting really into writing, just chilling with Gianni hooking up hanging out and hammering the keyboard and this whole period here was in the 80s so it's still 20 years till this book comes out but that's it seems like how with a lot of these authors that's how it works they write their first book for years it's just a culmination of all their writing from together and then after that they kind of get into factory mode making more money as an author it's like i mentioned before the band's first album isn't influenced at all by the record label it's pretty pure that's like a lot of these authors first books here and these stories in this book were being written as he's jacked up on wine and caffeine in the middle of the 80s going out and partying and snorting his nose off makes this book a little more special knowing that it was written <laughs> throughout his wild journey 
and it took him a few years here at this rainbow room. He said his co-workers elected him to be a shop steward at one point, but he passed on it and gave it to a friend, which is probably like the worst thing you could do when you have a boss. You have to put the illusion up. You have to show them, I'm here to take on any responsibility. You have to show them that you're reliable. And Anthony said no, probably why he got ground down at this place for a little while. And then he tried to get involved in the workers chef union in order to leave the rainbow room so they were keeping him down then they were like hey you didn't you told us you didn't want to be a chef bro we're going to keep training you for a couple years and he's like no i just wasted two years of my life and he applied through this union program and they were able to just get him a job as a chef somewhere else and that's the end of anthony making his bones you got to play the system somehow. You got to get experience where you can and then take what you learned and bring it somewhere else. It doesn't matter if this guy Gianni gives you the letter of recommendation or his fucking one in seven billion on this earth approval. It doesn't fucking matter. You take the experience and you go somewhere else and show them you're a hard worker and you have value. In the third course here, after Anthony making his bones a little bit, we have what he calls the happy times. So it's a good shift. In that last chapter, he was talking all about how he had a lot of trouble keeping a girlfriend because he was running around all the time working doubles. But this is a little later in his life, and he learned how to balance all this shit out. <laughs> He's learning the game of life. Dude, I'm a freshman at life. I understand why people call 23-year-olds that now. I'm a sophomore now, bro. Kind of get my shit together, I understand. It's a long-form game. It's a marathon out here. But you see, even through Anthony's writing, it's the value of books. You get to see the ebb and flow. And here we go back into a better period in his life he calls the happy time. It was down in Soho now. He got him and his boys together and they made an Italian restaurant. So this is every drunken, coke-induced conversation between frat dudes and friends. Dude, we should start a business. All right. Oh, yo, 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 yo. We should start a bar. Man, how many beers on tap? How are we getting chicks in the door? How many types of liquor? <laughs> and people get excited. And Anthony and his friends actually went through with it and started their own restaurant. And they were established. These guys, some of them went to the Culinary Institute of America and they were able to network. All the chefs hadn't heard of each other at this point in manhattan he was saying it was a weird it was a subculture he had stories about him and his buddies at this restaurant having other like famous chefs come through the restaurant and you know laying clam on the clams just doing dirty things inside of restaurants <laughs> but don't go reading kitchen confidential hoping you're gonna hear that rachel ray is the cumin chef spell that out come in <laughs> great wordplay nicholas there's no big names that he really dropped throughout the book it was just kind of funny stories about him and his buddies going out at that 2 a.m time when the chefs are going to their speakeasies and meeting other people to bring back to their frat house their restaurant and working with your buddies your co-workers influence your mindset they influence your day on the clock him and his buddies were playing their own music getting people in and out the door just making good food man and making money that's a dope experience it's like it's hard to have a friend over nothing that's why those fraternities will haze you that's why you have friends from high school you made it through high school together man you going through shit with people makes you a lot closer so him and his buddies were going through the rushes together fucking yelling at each other at each other's throats <laughs> but they were able to see through that is just the stress of working and had good times some of the dishes he was mentioning were raspberry vinaigrette swordfish just stuff that came up when they were tripping at the end of the night he said they were doing quaaludes pot lsd and mountains of cocaine like i said it was the 80s he would get all this shit from a Spanish guy down at the docks. Like I said, the fish market. People would just open up their trench coat. What do you need for tonight? Got your fish, got your fentanyl. <laughs> 
every fish in the world, every drug in the book these guys would have. One of the weird parts of this chapter, just the middle of the third course, the chapter he labeled the Happy Times in his first book, the only quote on his Wikipedia page, because I went over to do the about the author, I looked at his page and I was like, I literally have this quote for Nick's nonfiction, and it's the only quote on his page. I don't know why Anthony's being framed here. This was in his reckless period of his life, and the quote listed all those drugs I just said. It's just trying to discredit him as a, a well-written author and traveled person saying that, Oh my god, this dude's brain is fried! He's done so many drugs! Your brain is made out of elastic. <laughs> he was able to do heroin and then, then the next day write a chapter for Kitchen Confidential. How many people write a chapter in their life for any book? But, oh, but I went a whole lifetime without doing heroin, so I'm a better person than Anthony. There's, I don't understand how there's so many ranges of people's mentality. Someone actually lives like that. I don't like Anthony Bourdain. That dude was addicted to chemicals. <laughs> and super cheap framing. That's the only quote on his Wikipedia page from maybe the most traveled man ever. How many men have been to both poles? We only made it to the South Pole in the 1900s. There's probably a short list of men that have done that, and Anthony is one of them. And the only quote on his Wikipedia page is, I've done a bunch of drugs. That is wonderful framing. So him and all of his buddies were into that culture. It's part of the kitchen culture. And in these good times with all of his buddies, he said they did shit like if you cut yourself in the kitchen, you would have to try to get your blood as far and everywhere as possible. Just squeezing the wound, squirting the blood on people. Sorry if you're queasy, but that also means then you're not a feminist because feminists are for hashtag free bleeding, which is when you don't wear feminine care products and you just let the walls of your uterus show to the world on your pants. That's super powerful. Well, Anthony and his buddies accidentally chopping off his fingertip and then hashtag free bleeding, just squeezing his pumping blood finger onto all of his buddies. There were some disgustingly funny stories in the book. <laughs> they would also have fun with the food coloring. I remember one of my pranks I wanted to do in freshman year was go in other people's dorm rooms and dye their milk different colors. I don't know why that would have been fun, but it would have freaked people out. And then it would have been pooping purple. So it could have been a pretty good prank. <laughs> but instead, shout out to college homies. We were waffle stomping. Nobody was dying milk. Go Google waffle stomp if you want to lose all faith in humanity knowing that I've done that. <laughs> but it could be worse. At the end of the chapter here, Anthony was saying this is when he developed his heroin addiction. You see? But at the same time, he was also about to become a chef. Work hard, play hard, man. When you're at these highest levels of fucking around, how you do one thing is how you do everything. He's probably at the highest levels of networking because this dude is on crank. So we'll hear about this a little bit further in the book moving forward. But these were the happy times, so they set him up for success in the future in some ways, but they also let him down a dark path in a couple other ways. But that's balance. That's life. Not everything's perfect. <laughs> Moving along in the third course here, we have a little one called Chef of the Future. Anthony was in his like mid-20s here, and after that friend Italian restaurant in Soho, he moved to West 46th Street. That's over in like the theater district. And Anthony was talking all about how he had really good co-workers here. Some of them were really involved in the theater community. So they would hook him up with dinner parties that needed to be catered. That's better than slaving over a crowded kitchen in a restaurant. If you could start your own catering business, it's like freelance writing, freelance cooking. And so he got involved in some of that at this point in time. That's why he called this chapter Chef of the Future. He had very high aspirations. He was able to make some fat fucking loot too, just doing all these catering for these theater dweebs. And at the same time, he's networking, and the more hands that you shake, you know, the more potential fans that you have, the more people he could cook for, the more people he meets. 
the guys that he was obsessing over names were Tom and Frank, and Tom wooed them with his famous circular meatloaf. Don't know if that was a pun intended because there were many double entendres about Tom and Frank being partners, and Frank was also wooing people with his pickled dill bread, another phallic-shaped food from Tom and Frank out here. But these are some chefs of the future that Anthony was cooking with. And as a co-chef with these guys, he was still able to hire some of his drunkard buddies from that ex-restaurant. So these were still the good times, he's saying. It leaked into the next place. It just wasn't full debauchery <laughs> as it was in that mutually owned restaurant. And you see here, even though he started his heroin habit there, he's definitely running with a better crowd here altogether. And Anthony ended that shorter chapter saying he wishes he caught the travel bug at this time rather than getting addicted to stockpiling money and doing drugs. He had he was said he was sitting on a fat stash of loot and he's like, I was in my mid-twenties, I was a good-looking guy with a good job. Why the hell was I not traveling the world at this time? It's in my prime. So many people look forward to their retirement and traveling the world. You're not going to have the energy or the motivation to want to go meet people in other lands at that time. You want to do that while you're young and fucking excited about life still and so anthony realized that another realization from this friggin wizard ending his chef of the future chapter and we have now we have next dramatically named apocalypse now and this is when he moved up to gino's which was an italian place run by a guy named silver shadow just a guy with the coolest nickname ever the chapter started talking about how this was a bit of a struggle or a roadblock in his career. This guy, Gino, he also opened a sister restaurant in Baltimore. So this is just another example of, you know, the small business owner overextending themselves. Why this guy, he's in the middle of Manhattan. That's like a five-hour commute to get down to Baltimore, and he's going to go there every single weekend. Okay, man, that sounds like a foreigner. Oh, what do you, Baltimore's next city? Yes. <laughs> And Anthony, in his three classifications, there's the artist, the outcasts, and the mercenaries. I would put him in mercenary rather than artist at this point. Because Mr. Pride and Joy New York went down to Baltimore for a few years to work at this sister restaurant because he was being paid really good. He had the chef experience and he's about the money at this point. It was a 300-seat place that he was co-chefing and managing. So he started at the one in New York before they were like, okay, you're legit, yeah, let's go let you manage Baltimore. The one in New York was a 300-seat place, pretty big. And then the one that he went to go manage in the harbor was almost as big as that. At the first place that he's going to manage for the most part, that's pretty tough, man. That's pretty tough, and we saw through how he reacted, upping his heroin dosages. In the book, he was shitting all over Baltimore, which isn't very hard to do. I think I could have wrote a 300-page paper shitting on Baltimore. Have you ever been to the Inner Harbor? You can literally see Camden Yards, a beautiful MLB stadium. The few blocks between the harbor and the stadium are a ghost town. You feel like you'd have a gun pulled on you. People are taking Ubers three blocks down for what's in sight. When you're driving into Baltimore, you see these salt mounds that are the size of buildings. Just a beautiful look. When you're driving up the East Coast, even the highways just nope straight around Baltimore. You go right around and you see the stadium, the smog, and the city. That was a majority of Anthony talking about his time down there. Before he went on to give a little more chef knowledge, he was saying how places like Gino's on the Upper East Side are so wild busy that they only have their best run for about four years. It's just like the Krusty Krab and Spongebob was only good for four seasons, four years, man. Things get broken in. People want to see what's new. It's trying to find that staying power. And specifically in the restaurant business, the staff gets overlooked, the place gets beat to shit. 
and the owners they have all the capital they made their money back on this restaurant so let's just go start this over somewhere else now i have a working formula but the waiters and the people that are working 20 hours a week here and there trying to make it work they are not taken into account there and this is what pushed anthony away from the chef status and managing he also was bagging on Baltimore because his other co-worker was this guy that was high on quaaludes all the time, all dodgy, thinking he was mad at him, or trying to plot against him. So basically here he's just not happy in his work. He starts to tank, and he said some of the hardest conversations he's ever had to have in his life was telling those hard-working immigrants that came all the way to America for work, no mas trabaja aquí, there's no more work here, man, sorry, I can't employ you anymore. And that's because Gino's was going under because this guy overextended himself. And he says he slumped for three weeks after leaving this Baltimore job. And when he came back from that, Anthony realized that he never wanted to be a chef again. Because as a leader of men, you have to betray them at some point throughout the process. It's part of the process. And that weighs on some people too hard. We see throughout the book, he does go on to be a chef again. So I guess he just learns how to cope with that. He mans up. Or we could use his terms to try to dissect that. I think, like he said, while he was in Baltimore, he was on this mercenary route. Him going, I'll never be a chef again. He's probably just saying, I want to take the artistic route now. It's not just about firing men. It's about getting a good staff and making good food while not being on heroin. (laughs) And as he left, Gino then did time for federal tax evasion. (laughs) so he got out at the right time and he said he was ready to enter the wilderness and wander and write leading us into our next chapter in this third course the wilderness years anthony gets off heroin and says things start to get really bad (laughs) there's a million ways to interpret this what does he mean it gets really bad is it just because he doesn't feel like he has the strongest opiate on earth running through his blood every single moment of the day But he's saying this career-wise. The next move he made, he was working as a chef in a hotel in Upper Manhattan. It was Harlemish. And with all the the racist chapters before, I'm starting to think maybe that's why he's saying things got worse. It's okay, man. You're just in a more diverse community. But his restaurant there, he said he worked under an older Jewish gentleman that just got out of prison. So this story doesn't add up already. I've never heard of a Jewish convict. Unless Andy Dufresne was Jewish. Remember from Shawshank Redemption, he was doing the warden's taxes in prison. Well, there you go. And that's why this guy was able to commute his sentence, because he was a good Jewish inmate. Sorry not sorry for my mildly racial slur there, but I'm pretty sure that's what these following chapters were about. Anthony was just going back in on racial slurs. He says the Jewish guy he was working for up in Harlem was the best bagel baker he ever knew. <laughs> I'm convinced at this point there's just like a secret bagel shop in New York that you have to recite some Torah quote to get into. <laughs> and they have the freshest locks on the island of Manhattan, <laughs> even on a Monday. So he didn't last long up with the Jewish baker, and then Anthony moved downtown and was working at a Mexican restaurant on 2nd Ave, what he called the frat boy strip. It's right off of Wall Street, that makes sense. Big money for him, but he says, again, a tough lifestyle, so he, he had to cheddar up. He had to go back to the mercenary route for a little bit. This place, he said, was also nasty. They left avocados in the alley at night, and rats would just nibble through the husk of the avocados. Have you ever watched the rat documentary in New York City? There is, by weight, more mass of rats in New York City than there are people. And there's 8 million people, so that's a heavy amount of rats. (laughs) Heavy amount of rats wang down New York. It's pretty gross. (laughs) And the city with the best restaurants also has the most rats. (laughs) In this chapter, The Wilderness Years, Anthony wrote some more about bar stories he had with a 50-year-old Irishman. 
but these are just more stories. He says his experiences eating around France as a child were not being used behind a shellfish bar. And so he starts to consider himself slipping into the frying Dutchman position. This is like the much feared position of chefs, he said, to be like the old guy where there's nothing else. You know that you're going to die behind the fryer. There's one 50-year-old open micer out here in Denver. He does blasts a Coke in the bathroom. But he's still grinding it out, so he gets respect from everyone. But the thing is, you don't want to be the Flying Dutchman. It's the one time you don't want to be like Mike. And Anthony realized this and tries to start himself on a new course. For this next chapter, he called, What I Know About Meat, <laughs> laughs in 14-year-old boy. <laughs> he starts chefing at a French restaurant, so I guess he took his words to heart. This is where he's got to start using his skills. And he's back up on the Upper East Side as he describes his career as a magic carpet ride. <laughs> because before he was on the Upper East Side before going down to Baltimore and then Second Ave at a Mexican restaurant. So it's about the magic carpet ride more than the destination usually. But this time on the Upper East Side, he's working for an, a French owner with bags under his eyes down to his jaw. And him and the owner, he said, would watch a lot of soccer together. But now isn't he slipping into that don't-want-to-restaurant where the guys are in the front just watching football games all day? <laughs> it's not a good sign for how clean the kitchen's gonna be. So again, he's not hitting his stride fully here. It's still the 80s, they're still doing coke, and he's working 10 to 10s every day for 6 or 7 days, he says. This French owner wanted his ass kissed, and Anthony doesn't put up with that type of shit, so Bourdain tried to tell off the owner, and the owner said in a French accent, What do you know about me? And Anthony didn't know if he said, what do you know about me? Or what do you know about me? So Anthony just went off. What do I know about you? Bitch, you're a money-hungry shell of a man who looks like a zombie and can't even get laid. Blah, blah, blah. Self-righteous asshole. Some more Anthony Bourdain type of disses. You know, he comes off as the snarky dude, Anthony. But when you double down on the snark that hard and the guy goes, No, what do you know about meat? You are not even chef. And he says he still doesn't know to this day whether this French guy says, what do you know about me? What do you know about meat? But he lost his job over it because he decided to snap. This chapter was relatable, though, because, you know, everybody has had a boss that wants to have their ass kissed a little too much. <laughs> and everybody obsesses over The Office, the TV show The Office. But, but a lot of people are still overlooking what the show is about. The first three seasons, the real parts of the show we're talking about, was about this dude, Michael Scott, was a boss who was abusing his position, making everybody his friend, and making everybody have to laugh at his inappropriate unfunny jokes because he has this position of power over them and that is 90 percent of bosses in america that was the point of the show that's what made it so funny he was trying to make jokes on gender and race equality day and everybody had to go along with it because they're his subordinates and anthony is a free spirit and does not go along with this type of shit and he forwards his story not living out the rest of his life working under a shitty boss he took what he could learn from that which was don't pop off at your bosses when you don't even know what they're saying anymore and he moved on and let me meld this next chapter into it because it really wasn't that meaningful it was called pinot noir tuscan interlude douchey title and it's basically just that after the french restaurant he goes to start work with sicilians who would stab you in the book I will stop you in the buck. That's how the Sicilians would say it. <laughs> He's going back into his go-to writing habit, racial slurs. <laughs> There's a good little story about the owner of this place. His name was Pino. One of the most charming, straightforward, generous, useful, whatever guys that he said that he's ever known. And he finally gets more into women. 
He's just about 30 at this point, and he gets his work scheduled together, and his Pino was able to show him how to take girls out on dates. But Pino starts stealing Anthony's drugs, and Anthony said he was flummoxed by this. Yeah, I was very taken about by I had to read the word flummoxed. <laughs> But Anthony was not happy that Pino was stealing his drugs. And this taught Anthony how to watch his book and to make the most out of opportunities. Take out what you learned and use it moving forward. Just like how Pino was able to make the best pasta he knew. Because Pino's Italian and Anthony's racist. <laughs> As we move on to dessert here, Anthony moved on to a new job where he meets some of his latest friends and cooks that he'd hire throughout the rest of his life. A time for dessert, Anthony calls this first chapter here, A Day in the Life. And he's kind of shifting the audience towards this latter part of the book about people who would like to be chefs or what they should be doing to get themselves to that level. He said, beginning of the day, alarm goes off. Anthony says he gets up at six and starts pulling lists together. This is something I learned from my coffeehouse job, something I've, I've taken into my life. I mean, I've always had this TTD that I have on my desktop where I have literally my daily activities. Did I work out today? Did I read today? Did I write today? Did I look at and read up on my stocks that I'm holding? Did I post my meme? Lists are life. And you know what's even better than making a list? Crossing something off the damn list. Anthony knows this is a crucial part about being a chef. You got to have this as part of your habits. He said as soon as he rolled out of bed at six, he started coming up with specials for the day. And then he would check the reservations that were coming up at the current gig when he was writing this. He was doing 280 meals a night and around 80 reservations. That's a pretty big restaurant. That might be a couple hundred seater. Then you drive to your restaurant. He said he would start to cut up the calf depending on the restaurant. I mean, you could be as lazy of a restaurant owner as you want. He's talking about the grind here. But you could be a restaurant depot-ass restaurant. Have you... I've been with uh, friends in high school who's like dad's own a restaurant. Restaurant Depot is dope. It is wholesale food that you sell in your restaurant. And as long as you have that Costco card that goes with it, you could go buy restaurant quality food. So you could just roll out of your bed an hour before the restaurant opens, head to Restaurant Depot, pick up some steaks, and that could be your restaurant. Or you could be like one of these Seattle farm-to-table restaurants who go out and catch a 100 wild rabbits every morning to put in your stew, and you have to show the pictures of the rabbits to each patron to prove that they lived a free-range life. So there's a ton of different models of business that you could do, so don't take Anthony's little daily planner here as a Bible. After you make all your cuts on whatever your protein is for the day, you start prepping for the night, whatever, cutting up your shallots in the size of the dish that you're going to be making as much preparation as possible because you're about to be in the bunkers. You're about to be in the rush. Like you said before, prior preparation prevents piss poor performance. You are setting up your fortifications and defenses for the night. And then the lunch rush comes, he says, which is usually a good indicator about how your dinner is going to be for the night. And then he gave a really cool couple page description about picturing a kitchen as like a highway people moving one direction the other and something i've noticed and he was talking about i think is really true people who have worked in kitchens have much better spatial awareness not like these people who in the middle of manhattan or in the middle of a walkway dude it doesn't matter where you are stop in the middle and look at their phone how bad do you want to blindside this stupid fucking check them onto the ground? We were walking here. Why are you stopping? No, you pull to the side. This is like driving. But your brain isn't operating at this level all the time. And so, I need look phone now. 
No, you're in the middle of a human highway. Fucking move. <laughs> Anthony noticed people who have worked in kitchens have much better spatial awareness because you have to be able to take in a lot more stimuli. There's people yelling from every direction. Chefs are screaming at waiters to grab hot food. It seems like chaos, but it has to mimic a precise assembly line as much as possible. And then one of the words Anthony used to describe the rushes throughout a night at a restaurant is like a hurricane. Sometimes you're in the eye of the hurricane, but the thing is, you know you're in the eye. You go out and smoke a cigarette. You and your coworker, it's coming, man. You know it's coming back, right? They're coming. You're in the eye. You're getting ready for it to hit the fan again. He used his beautiful writing skills to describe how the day finally ends. The printer starts to slow down. You cook at a bit of a slower pace. You're able to start cleaning while you're cooking towards the end. And then finally, it's 1 a.m. Everybody's out. You got all your stuff away. But your adrenaline is still pumping out the ash and you're not able to go to sleep. He was talking about this like halfway down a subway entrance bar that he and his friends would always go to. It was just like a 12-seat bar. I don't Was that? I'm pretty sure, yeah, that was in the book. I See, it's hard to remember if it was like parts unknown, no reservations that I saw this. But yeah, he was saying there's just a speakeasy bar where he knew the owner. And at 1 a.m. after these long-ass nights, maybe bring that bartender some leftovers. And he was drinking free for the night. And that is a day in the life of chef. Anthony talking about being a sous chef here. Second part of dessert. He says you need a sous chef that is closer to you than your spouse. Someone that you could look at across the restaurant in the middle of a rush, raise one eyebrow, and that guy knows exactly what you're trying to say. He worked with his specific co-chef from 1993 until the day he died. So over 20 years, it was with this hardworking Spanish guy. You could go look at pictures of them together. But you have to be working with someone, he says, that would get you out of jail, get you drugs if you need it, or worse, lie to your wife for you. <laughs> I hate those types of jokes, man. Oh, if the wife will let me. What the fuck is this? Is this a warden? Is this someone controlling your life? If the wife will let me. <laughs> We're talking about the same person who manipulated you into taking them on to dates and then started wearing less makeup as the months went on to try to make it look like you didn't notice. I know when you don't look like you're trying to be in a magazine. So the more similar a sous chef is to you, the better this non-verbal language him and his sous chef had this that's some of the most fun stuff ever if this is like why uh foreign people shit talk in front of your face because if you have a language someone can't understand it's the funniest thing to shit talk someone right in front of their face in like middle school me and my buddies came up with this whole language it was like baseball signs like tap your chin once slide down your right arm scratch your ear and one meant this person's a cunt check that girl out i hate you there was a bunch of different words and we were laughing like lunatics, looking like crazy people, not saying a word, just using a nonverbal language to convey these things. It's really fun, really useful if you're in a really tough situation to have these little tools to use. I don't think we were actually using these nonverbal cues for good, though. One of our buddies <laughs> in middle school, we would rip his hair out at the end of our meals and put it on your school lunch. So it looks like the lunch ladies dropped hair in there. And they're like, hold the fuck up. You ate the entire lunch and then found that hair at the bottom. A stupid 11-year-old boy brains were like, yeah, that's what happened. And they're like, I really don't care. Here's free food. <laughs> yeah, maybe immoral like many of our plots at the time were. And with his sous chef moving along, he worked at the Supper Club, which was a famous, like, half club, half 
dance hall half restaurant and they would have buffets during the day and then people were doing drugs at night and having dance parties anthony said him and his sous chef came up with some promotional ideas they would do chicken buffets and 40s or they would have a towering transvestite night a chicks with dicks night <laughs> Just ways to get people in the door. Because if you're in New York City, you can't say, oh, we're having a young acoustic guitarist come through for the night. That's not going to get anybody to go to your restaurant. They can go two blocks up and go to an actual stage to see somebody perform. That's why Anthony and his buddy were coming up with these crazy-ass nights to try to get people in the door of their restaurant. He was also doing the inventory for the meats at the time. He said he was spending tens of thousands of dollars a day making his orders. And these were the perishables. So he said it was a rush. It was like a game. Not knowing if you're going to bust, if you're going to buy too much meat and waste half your company's liquid funds for the day. So this place, the Supper Club, was like freaking Anthony's Chocolate Factory. <laughs> Towering transvestites to chicken and cores. From sparkling disco ball to low-grade whores. <laughs> You'll you'll see dwarf donuts, lady boy lasagna, and cigarette creme brulee. Anthony Bourdain is the Snorlax, and the dinner club is your place to play. Bars. <laughs> Wait, that's the Snorlax. That's not even Charlie the Chocolate Factory. Too bad. That's the song you're getting, and that's the song you're gonna like. So this it was just another cool part in Anthony's career. He was running his ideal restaurant, and then the nightclub owner that was that owned the place bailed. This is a common thing he was talking about. He just, he just just like went off the grid. So Anthony couldn't manage this place anymore. How does this just happen? Like there was a teen club in my town. It was called Confetti. I remember going there, grinding my 15 year old Guido Pin all over the place. Somebody was shot in the bathroom of this teen club and it didn't close. They just change owners, change names and it goes on. So even as he had a buddy now, he had a sous chef to talk shit on these chefs that would just these owners that would just come and go and not actually care about the work that Anthony's putting in trying to serve people great meals. And we are moving along to a little more dessert. This is the level of disclosure. Basically, this chapter was just lingo and positions that Anthony picked up throughout his adventure in the culinary underbelly. One of the most well-known terms that we hear, 86-something, that comes from the kitchen. It means you like don't have any left, you can't use any more. But it can also be used for someone who's about to be fired. He, yo, this dude's about to get 86th. Or a bar customer who's no longer welcome. That happens if there's too bad of a drunk, you're not going to be invited back to the bar. They don't want your money anymore, you're too bad. And then there was there were some funny quotes he had because this dude knows the language. One of my favorite things about the secret language is that my friend, come here, my friend, come here, my friend. My friend actually means asshole. Whenever people say that, mees we learned about before. Your mees is your setup. That's like the extension of your central nervous system. There's a rush and on the fly. Like if you drop something, you could get something on the fly. There's if a two top sits down, that's called the deuce. Anthony called it weeded when you're in you have a lot of work I've heard it called slammed or drowning <laughs> some of the chef terms he knew and I thought were pretty funny marijuana was what they called parsley demi-glace they called jizz it, when I worked at the pizza restaurant we would call balsamic balls <laughs> even better whenever someone would come in the door and get like a meat lover slice it was the best thing because you have to put your customer service face all day and finally you could be like right to this guy's face you'd be like I got one meat lover! One meat lover! <laughs> and you see him walk away after you take his money. Not a meat lover! I only wanted pizza! And then when you hand it out, one meat lover! Oh yes, just one lonely meat lover over here. 
<laughs> it's just all these things calling things balls anthony calling their demiglace jizz it's just making the misery more fun and then the most useful lingo from this chapter was ladies and gentlemen elvis is in the building which means the boss is here get your shit together act like this is how we do work all the time the boss is here and as for the people in the kitchen there are the runners these are the people who just <laughs> self-explanatory but these guys are paid out of the front of the house payroll so they don't even really have that much to do with the kitchen or the chefs which is why you see the chefs fucking screaming at these kids because they just see them as a contractor they're not on the same payroll even and the runners are usually exiled waiters so people that can't get a waiter gig they'll let you run food or prior bus boys and as a runner you need speed because you're responsible for the pace of the restaurant you're getting these people in and out the door on a 30 to 40 minute loop anthony was saying i need my runners to be able to tell if a steak is medium or rare from looking at it without cutting in so you got you got to have x-ray vision apparently to be a runner but most importantly if the maitre d is like bad mouthing one of the chefs or one of their specials they want the runners as a low-key inside ear so you have to have a rat managers always have a mole on any level you know whoever's the biggest kiss ass in the office is usually telling the boss what you're doing in your cubicle it applies in every situation man it's like the beta white males who try to be feminists they're just using camouflage as a way to kiss ass and get higher the staff isn't ever going to talk truthfully to the manager so they need to hire their snakes to go listen in on everybody and aside from the runners you know what waiters are you know what busboys are there's the night porter which is like a cleaning service that comes in and cleans your restaurant after night and he says it's usually hard to trust that you're going to have everything that you left out before so you gotta usually lock down your shit even though it's your own restaurant anthony made a funny here he was saying this night porter though is probably gonna steal less than your bartender because you know every time your bartender goes this round's on the house or you guys got a round on me that costs him nothing and he's gonna get tipped out the ass but he's using the restaurant's booze to do that so it's like what they fucking consider time theft you know but on the same hand he's making these people have an enjoyable time at the restaurant so they're gonna come back time theft how if you look at your phone you're technically stealing company's time or if you frame it in another way it's actually trying to recover a bit of sanity <laughs> so you can frame these things in one way or another but the kitchen term i've heard used for it was freewheeling that's when you give people free booze hoping they give you tips but then there's this other thing anthony mentioned called third tilling which is bringing in your own bottle of booze and then charging people and selling your own booze through the bar but he says this is super uncommon that would be like if your chef <laughs> just had a pop-up hot dog stand right outside on the corner of your restaurant we have this world famous chef in our restaurant and then the guy after hours just goes and starts a bratwurst stand and makes more money than the restaurant it's less common but you could see how you can make a lot of money more doing your own thing selling out your own bottles and the bartenders and the chefs are usually friends the chef wants to be able to drink anything he wants, and the bartender wants to be able to not have to pay for a meal again every single day. And that is how the symbiotic relationship of chef and bartender usually comes about. They're two of the most powerful positions in the restaurant. Of course, they have to team up. Otherwise, the place would be a civil war. And that is going to do it for the level of disclosure, all the lingo and positions in the kitchen. 
and we are finishing up dessert here with what he called the department of human resources which is a short chapter because there is no department of human resources in the kitchen if your skin isn't tough enough you're going to get burned and you're going to quit your job probably you can't hang with the cooks and so one of anthony's good friends he's a chef at the time the good friend had to fire one of the cooks that was not a good employee he was unstable he wouldn't show up at times he would come to work blitzed out of his mind and when anthony's good friend fired this kid he killed himself and this guy was in a deep slump from it he's like whoa i'm the direct cause for that kid killing himself but anthony's consolation was if not you then with who some other chef would have had to fire him and it would have been someone else's responsibility so don't take that responsibility on yourself that's like why you can't feel too bad for a suicide man we're all individual this is hard to say we're all individuals making a choice that person chose to move on they were struggling so fucking hard man do you imagine what angst you must be in to actually have the courage to go through with ending your life maybe that was better for this person and you say there's always a way to be happy we should always be offering help you can't offer help to someone who doesn't want it and that's what anthony's saying about so this kid was basically unfixable you can't win them all you're gonna have those l's on your record no matter how big the l you feel like is there's no hr in the kitchen there's no one to guide this kid through getting fired and i would actually have respect for this chef for firing an unstable person in a kitchen this is the easiest place you could be killed the only workplace environment where there's always a knife within grabbing reach <laughs> survival has its cost on both sides dude <laughs> this kid could have just as easily came at you with a boning knife rather than his own neck so the way they got over this <laughs> rather than implementing an hr department and implementing new standards was laughing it off man they just called anthony's friend killer from then on it was his new nickname there's nothing pc about the kitchen and that's why it's one of the oldest business practices you're just making people food and it's the hardest grinders that make the best money and get to those highest levels along with a lot of personality politics because a lot of restaurant owners know each other and this will bring us to the final part of the book we have coffee and a cigarette and this starts with what he called the life of brian Anthony at this point in his life went to France for a little while and he was wondering you know why am I not a three-star chef but he was able to console with the fact because people get salty throughout the careers when he sees the life of Brian this was about his buddy who made it big as a chef he was able to contrast his story with the other guys <laughs> oh this guy was putting the work in while I was doing heroin that's why I'm not the three-star chef even at 40 years old now he's in France and he kept his nose to the grindstone have you ever seen that documentary Jiro Dreams of Sushi? <laughs> That's what it's about. There's this like 80-year-old guy and he has two sons. One of the sons is like 40 and the other son is 50. And they are both working full-time for their dad who's a prick to them. Has them like massage octopus for four hours before they have to cut it up. And only one of the kids gets to inherit the restaurant. You know, because honor. It's definitely a good documentary. Kind of ties into this whole culinary underbelly. You get an idea of how hard these chefs are grinding through that one and this michelin three-star chef that anthony was working with in france brian this was the guy who made anthony's first edibles which was mushroom truffles and that's a pretty great experience in the hills of france eating risotto and butter and having that first mind-opening experience and he says this was such a big influence this was where he had one of the influences to start 0.0 productions and have his own travel show based around eating and pairing food with the beautiful landscapes he finds around the world and people 
so he talked about him and Brian. All cooks are sentimental fools. They all find, especially later in their careers, they refine the love for why they got into this cooking in the first place. So maybe he is all wrong. Maybe it's not about the grind. Maybe it is all about food because you come back to it in the end. And this will take us to another chapter here, Mission to Tokyo. So he's traveling a little bit now. We're transitioning. This is when he was talking about how at many times in his life, the statistical probabilities that he should have been dead are higher than him still being alive. He ends the statement saying that there is no justice in the world, which makes sense, man. You can make your reality whatever you want. There is no justice. There's only perception. And since there is no justice in life, you know, he should have been dead, but he's not dead. So his philosophy is, since life isn't just, doesn't that make you want to try the one cigarette in your entire life? Or having talked to that girl who was walking by that smirked at you? But if you take his logic here about life not being fair, if you take that to its logical conclusion which also ties into his logical conclusion about treating your body like an amusement park. If he's banking on a premature death, he might as well have been 600 pounds driving a rascal scooter around the globe. Then he would have really been repping America. <laughs> but the guy died ripped. So obviously he was a bit vain. He wasn't going to let himself get 600 pounds. And he followed that own treat your body as an, as an amusement park. The world isn't fair. He lived that by a guideline as well. So he did a trip to Japan and he loved it. It ignited his passion to travel and got him out of the kitchen finally. He starts writing about how traveling is a perspective-altering life experience. You are off the reserve. You are seeing how other people do their routine and it's different from yours. Yeah, people do other things. You're not the only one that exists. You have to live your own story every day, but there's 7 billion other ones going on around you. So you don't get this life-altering knowledge going back into your cubicle. Maybe you'll get it from some drunk sailor that you happened to run into when you stayed out at the bar when your friends went home. Or, he's, or how he caught the travel bug here, he says you have much bigger experiences the further you get out of your circle and out of your comfort zone. And in his TV shows, he goes back to Japan several times. One of those episodes with the guy who found his dead body. He went to Japan with him. He obviously loves the adventure here. And it was a pretty beautiful end to the descriptive narrative tale of the Kitchen Confidential book. And we have just two chapters left. And these are doubling down on Anthony talking to you future chefs out there. This chapter was called, So You Want to Be a Chef. Subtitle for the chapter was, A Commencement for Chefs. He's treating it like if you just graduated from the CIA, this, from the Culinary Institute of America, this is what Anthony boiled down into 10 points, was able to learn from his adventure through the culinary underbelly. And number zero, before even number one, you have no right to work. You have to earn your work and prove your value. So people that say the unemployment rate is 10%, I always say if you get a group of 10 of your friends together, you know one of them that either doesn't want to have a job or shouldn't have a job. So if unemployment is 10%, yeah, that sounds about right to be real. And so that's what these people in the street that are picketing, there are no jobs. If you spent this day on Monster.com, LinkedIn, Livestar, any of those job board website, you probably could find work rather than saying the government needs to give you work. Stop getting the fucking government involved. Unless you're picketing them as an entity, stop trying to get them to do more shit. You have no right to work anyway. You probably don't have value. So go command value before you command money. That's number zero from Anthony. Nobody has the right to work. You have to prove you're right. Number one, he says, be 
fully committed. Do not be a fence sitter. You have to immerse yourself. Whatever your fucking grind is, dive in head first. If you are the kid that runs around the pool and dips his toe in for an hour, you're never going to get in the pool, dude. You're going to sit on the side with your mom the entire day while your buddies are splashing around. Immerse yourself. Dive in head first. This is my idea with comedy. You see, I fucking ditched my life to move out to Denver. I see how many lives I could have lived, man. I've had secure jobs and girlfriends, but if you want to get involved in something new like the subculture of being a chef like Anthony said, you gotta be in the trenches. You gotta learn to take orders so that you can give orders. You gotta learn how to handle a shitty drunken bar crowd before you can handle a paying crowd. Number two Anthony has here was learn Spanish. If you want to be a leader, like I said before, if you're going to manage men who can only speak Spanish, you better be able to talk your men's language. Number three was don't steal food. This is like an obvious one, man. The, if you work around money, the opportunity to steal is always there in front of you. But if you swipe money one time, cool, what did you make? 40 bucks? I'm pretty sure this employer has given you more than 40 bucks throughout your time working for them. Don't steal. Don't steal food, Anthony was saying. I like this tip he had. Don't do anything you wouldn't pass a polygraph over. This is especially true in the kitchen because you get so many free drinks that the truth is going to slip out eventually if you're hiding behind something. And Anthony also said, don't take bribes. Why? Because then that person owns you. We see with politicians, if you take money from someone, then they'll be like, wait, I just gave you all this money. Do something for me now. It's natural in the human to want to give something back to someone who gave to you. So don't be taking these bribes. I mean, in general, man, if the kitchen doesn't hook you up with food, you're probably working at the wrong place. Some places you might be a, a server for and they still make you pay for food, no free meals. Be buddies with the chef. If you're a poor fucking busboy that needs a bowl of rice, the guy is going to hook you up if he likes you. Number four, always be on time. Love it. This shit is my credo. It's disrespectful to keep someone waiting for you. You both agreed on a time. So why do you think your time is more valuable than this other person? Why are you making them wait for you? Probably more important than that too. Always know when it's your time to leave. You do not want to be the guy that's overstaying your welcome. People talk about each other. That's what humans do. As Gossiping is like scratching an itch on your brain. It releases endorphins. It feels good. So when you're there past your welcome, you don't want to have to be told, dude, I think you should go. That is even worse than not being on time. Number five, never make excuses or blame others. Love it. <laughs> Jesus, that friggin immediately snapped a quote into my memory, burned into my memory through my military training. Excuses are tools of the incompetent, built upon monuments of nothing. Those who specialize in these seldom amount to anything. Don't make excuses, man. You see these people who fucking excuses are tools of the incompetent. Some people are all talk, are always busy. It's because they always have excuses, and the only thing they are good at now is making excuses. They're tools of the incompetent. And what do they build? They build monuments of nothing. They build you into a better liar, a better fucking busy person. <laughs> and they don't get you anywhere. Anthony said don't get into making excuses and also don't blame others that's just stupid when you're working in a kitchen environment that's a team environment when you're a team you have to have an enemy the enemy is the customer whether you like it or not so you're working with your brothers to get these customers in and out the door that's the truth behind the mentality at restaurants he's saying and so if you're blaming others nobody's gonna want you on your team fucking sack up take responsibility for your mistakes but once you make a mistake don't make that mistake again. Learn from your mistakes. Number six, never call in sick. His point was, okay, granny died. Go bury her on your day off. 
<laughs> Working in a kitchen, this dude has seen dismemberment, so he considered missing limbs to be the only fair excuse for missing work. Number seven, lazy, sloppy, slow. Those are bad. How you do one thing is how you do everything. What are the antonyms of those words? Enterprising, crafty, hyperactive. You want to be all those things. That is going to get you further. Number eight, be prepared to witness heinous things in the kitchen. And in life too, like he said, there's no HR in the kitchen. So if if this is your commencement address, you want to get into chefdom, realize somebody is going to roast you somewhere down the line because there's no fucking rules here. Get ready to hear the truth. And so he said heinous things in kitchen and in life too, because back to his thing, there's no justice in life. Life is unfair. Around every corner is inequalities. All these insecurities, why is this kid getting something and I'm not, are better questions left unasked. Because how does that fuel you? You got to choose narratives that are going to fuel your brain. Not why the hell did that kid get the show and I didn't. It's how the fuck do I get to be like this kid who's doing more than I am right now? It's that negativity shit. If you start looking sour at other people, it's going to feed into that negativity virus. It's harder to do the mental energy to spin it positive, but that's going to make a better narrative for you moving forward. Number nine, assume the worst. His example was if you go into work and you're acting, hey, what's up, man? How are you? And you're all diddly yeehaw, expecting your coworker to match your energy just because you're having a good morning. <laughs> Their parents could have died that morning. So you always want to assume the worst. Go into a conversation neutral. Don't go up expecting happiness from someone. Go neutral. You never know what level of rage a person is coming into a conversation with. Dealing with strangers can be dangerous. So always assume the worst. One of my first realizations when I was 12 years old, I realized that there were different brands of cars. One of my first realizations was that if you have low expectations, then you can't be upset. Expect the worst. Hope for the best if you want. If you know that shit isn't always going to go your way, you're going to be pleasantly surprised more throughout life. Number 10, you made a mistake. Admit it and move on. Don't lie about it. This is why like asking questions is hard in the workplace because you're admitting that you don't know something. It's like what I was talking about before. Trying to ask a question in a lecture hall can be intimidating, but that's how you grow, getting out of your comfort zone, asking questions and learning. Number 11, avoid restaurants with the owner's name over the door. It could look tacky on your resume. Like I said, you don't need Joe DeBiglio's <laughs> restaurant education when this guy just made a good meatball and got lucky. Working for a corporation, they're going to teach you leadership skills because that's what this is. It's a machine. So you just have to manage people underneath you. It's a model for success, whereas you don't know if the Bigliano's pizza is going to make it past another two years, and this guy's meatballs are going to run out of the magic eventually. That's why Anthony's saying this is a commencement address. If you're concerned about your resume, it might not be bad to work at Olive Garden as opposed to this whack jobs place. And especially if you go to friggin' Monticino's, whatever Italian restaurant in your own house, you're going to see the same small town girl who's been their hostess for a decade because they pay her just well enough where she's not going to be ambitious to go get a new job. And that's exactly what they want. They don't want the turnover of a big corporation. They don't need to be training and hoping for just part-time employees that are going to cycle in and perpetually fill these positions. So if you want to make it to the chef level, if you want to make it to the management level in anything, he's saying, you might have to sell out for a little while to put something on your resume but this will also steer you clear of getting trapped into 
Verduchal's Winery. Get out there, learn that personnel management. Friggin' Chipotle? Dude, I love Chipotle. I talk, I've talked about them every month. I talk to the, the kids that run the Chipotle by my house. They're getting their college education paid for through Chipotle, dude. Is Sal going to pay for this small-town girl who's been a hostess for a decade? There's no way this guy out of the kindness of his heart pays for her tuition. Some of these corporations have really great advantages to them. And that leads us into number 12. Anthony says, think about that resume. Never give the reason for leaving your last job. Always just say it's money or ambition. Because the boss is going to construe it or take it personally. Oh, this kid thinks he's a fucking free spirit. He only thinks about himself. And then they're just going to spin it however they want. Always just say, I wasn't being paid enough or I wanted to take on a new challenge. That's it. You know the employer is going to lie to you about their responsibilities. You're going to have a lot more in a month that they're not paying you for. So you can lie to them a little bit to get the job, he's saying. Number 13, read. This was a weird one. You're starting to think I wrote this list. Number 13, he said, read. It goes a long way to immerse yourself into the culture. So read cookbooks, all that jazz. And final 14 was have a sense of humor about things. You will need it. <laughs> it's my coping mechanism, man. Life is tough as fuck. If you could find the silliness in it, it'll help you get through. Humor is the impenetrable armor. If you can find the contradiction in something, if you are knocked on your ass, if the world has taken everything away from you, you can just sit there and go, is someone playing a trick on me? Is the world playing a trick on me now? Because you know it's going to eventually get better. So it's not a really funny trick. The best you can do is try to make a joke about it and enjoy the ride. Enjoy the magic carpet ride that Anthony was able to do. He was able to grind and go around the world and pass on these knowledgeable lessons for future chefs. And final chapter here, Kitchens Closed. This chapter was mainly a checkup on all of the characters that were throughout the book and people who are still in the business, still cooking, people who he mentioned and then fell off the face of the earth. He went back to Provincetown where he had those good formative years learning about the craft of cooking and he said some of those buddies he worked with were still there. So there's some reliable people that he came across in his journeys. One of the quotes I like, he said, just referring to the whole journey in this kitchen's closed was, we took some casualties along the way Things got broken and lost, but I wouldn't let that impede the journey from the world. So just like that guy who had to fire a kid who killed himself, things get broken, things get lost. You can't let that impede your journey. You have to just let that be part of it. Ride the wave and keep moving. He mentioned here in the closing part of the book that he wrote this in Bali and Indonesia after a stint in Seoul and Jakarta. And then I did take a bit out of the, I had like a special edition of the book, which was released a few years after. And he did like an update. And he said the last time he cooked seriously was six months after the book came out. He was saying when he was in Baltimore, I don't want to be in this grind anymore. He started writing. And 20 years from then, he finally puts his book on the market. He gets the balls to put it out there. And six months after, he never has to cook again. He is a free man. He has the financial means to do whatever he wants in life. And he uses that to start his own production company and travel around the world. This dude is an inspiration. He might have got addicted to heroin. He might have gotten STDs along the ways, but this dude made it out. And he hung on until his 50s and cashed out in the best reward anybody could ask for, being one of the few citizens of the world. Anthony wraps up saying he's sorry to everyone he trashed. That's why he didn't use real names. Human behavior, he says throughout the journey, will still always remain a mystery to him. An eerie point to end the book as this man ended his life.
So yes, you can have it all, you can win it all, you can make it through the grind, you can throw your brain chemistry off doing very hard drugs, and maybe that is what led to Anthony dying. Or maybe Anthony was always depressed and he was going to end his life in these brain-degenerating years of his life. Maybe that was just part of it. It's all speculation. You can go to a white lab coat doctor. Nobody's going to be able to tell you the answer. Like Anthony said, human behavior will still remain a mystery. And that is going to do us trying to end that one on a depressing note, but, you know, that's kind of how Anthony went out, and so that's how our show is going to end this month. Thank you guys for tuning in. This was a pleasure. I got to annotate one of my favorite author's books with some silly jokes to an audience, man. I've loved doing this show. Thank you guys for making this a worthwhile pursuit and tuning in month after month. We're six months in. It's been a fun journey. We got a backlog. We got followers. Harry shit. Harry shit's at over 8,000 followers. We're on track to be at 10K by the end of the year, posting direct links to YouTube videos on Harry shit's my stories. This community is going to be getting a lot bigger soon. And I respect all you there from the beginning. I welcome all you new listeners and thank you for joining along. Next month, for the month of July, we are going to be reading Michael Shermer's Mind of the Market. I am going to be making you free money next month, telling you the biggest human fallacies about where we waste our money, if you're going to invest, when to hold, when to sell, and why markets rise men out of poverty. He's a well-known guy, been on the Joe Rogan Show, and he has tons of books, runs the Skeptic Magazine and website. This guy is out for truth, and he studies the market. He is giving us that Ty Cruz, the guy who interrupts all your YouTube videos to go, you want to know how I make eight million (laughs) dollars no we have michael Shermer's real book coming up for the month of july so thank you guys it was a fun june keep getting tan denverites do your mushrooms i'll still be 23 next month and we'll be having another great time on the show i will see you guys then but for now if you need more check out the backlog this has been nick's Nonfiction with your host nick muniz i will see you all soon peace